Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the Project Observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 22, All Americans. They're gonna kill me. They still might. Oh boy. Say something to me in Spanish. Tu casa o mi casa. My place or yours. Mm. Al, what happens to Eddie? What happens to me in 62? Uh, let's see. You, uh... Oh, well, you get a football scholarship to UCLA, which will make your father puff out his chest another four inches. Three days after his mother waded across the Rio Grande. She sneaked across the border nine months pregnant? Half the schools in this country gotta be after him. They are. Oh, uh, no. What, he gets hurt? No. He throws the game. Your English is getting very good. But you're still having trouble with definitions. To rent means to pay for the use up. And you haven't rented for three months. All you've done is use. You owe me 800 bucks. I want you to stay away from Julian as well. I don't think I heard you, punk. I'll write it down if you can read. Best friend or no, you can't talk to my mama like that. I can if she's my mama too. Yeah. Why not? It is a good idea. It would solve all your problems, Senya. I don't marry you to solve problems. You mean you'd marry me because we... Because you love me? Hello and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we have a great show. We are talking about Season 2, Episode 14, All-Americans, or as it's known, the football episode. (laughs) And we have a great interview with David Campetti. He was the publisher of Innovation Comics in the 90s, the company that published the Quantum Leap comics. That's a great interview and that's coming up. And in this episode, we will be announcing the winner of our essay giveaway. Ooh. What did you think about this episode? I don't like football. So right away, that was a kind of obstacle I had to get over to enjoy the story. But once I did that, I did enjoy the story and the characters. I don't really think this episode is about football. It's not. It just happens to take place during the episode. 
It's funny that you even say that, though, because when I look back at the episode, I mean, I don't like or dislike football. I mean, I, I, I came from a family who watches football, so I watched it growing up. To me, the football was such a minor detail in this episode. So it's funny that you say that. I guess we all pull different things from each episode. I happen to really like this episode. I guess this isn't really a popular episode from what I've been hearing. I know from what I've seen online, it's pretty much split. Some people think it promotes stereotypes of the Hispanic community. Other people don't think so at all. So I don't know. Yeah, I heard the thing about stereotypes and I don't know if it represented stereotypes, but I don't think it was putting any culture in a bad light. Like, I liked, I think that my favorite part about this episode was the camaraderie. You could see it between the football players as a team, and you could see it between Eddie and Chewie and their families and, like, the parties that they had. It just seemed like everybody looked out for each other in that little community that they had, whether it was the team or the family. I liked the team that they did the shoulder thing where they pounded on each other's shoulders and... Roar Jaguars! Yeah. (laughs) And... I I don't know. I I like the little Elvis scene. And, you know, I just feel like the camaraderie in this episode was unique to what we've seen in the past, uh, in these episodes, at least. In the end, I did like the episode. I approached the episode knowing that some people had a problem with it. And I'm always trying to be sensitive to other people's cultures and trying to put myself in that position to see if I would have been offended by any of that. And I really wasn't. But it might just be because I'm not from the Hispanic community. When I first saw this episode, it kind of reminded me of Stand and Deliver. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Edward James almost Captain Adama. Right. Well, he takes a job as a high school teacher in East LA in a Hispanic neighborhood. And there's fighting and lots of bad things going on in that neighborhood. So I feel like this episode kind of made the Hispanic community in California look better than that movie. Like that was what I compared it to. So when Hispanic stereotypes were mentioned about this episode, I feel like compared to Stand and Deliver, it really didn't seem that way to me. But I I really liked it. And I, I don't think I looked at it as much being about Hispanics as about the actual heart of the story. Right. I didn't see him as Hispanics. I just as normal characters. There was a bad guy, Ruben, played by the late Fausto Barra. Yeah, he was pretty evil. (laughs) Right, but no matter what race he was, he would have been a bad guy. So I don't think that has anything to do with anything. My personal opinion. Yeah, I feel like the characters in this episode, nothing really specific to their culture happened. Like, I don't think it really mattered, except for the fact that Chewie's mother wasn't getting paid. Because she was uh, not a citizen of the United States. Right, so she couldn't make a stink about it. But all in all, I think this was a really good episode. I have to say... It was a little funky that Sam said, and Celia, you can sleep with my dad. Because I feel like the wording was just weird in that. (laughs) I thought about that watching it. And I think the reason that line was said like that, because if Eddie had just said, and your mom can sleep in my dad's room, then Chewie wouldn't have been upset and have to confront him. So then the whole brother marriage thing wouldn't have come about. So I think it was a necessary part to get to the end of the story. Okay, I can see that. But it's funny, every time I watched it, I was like, that just sounds weird. (laughs) It did. It was a little weird. And I'm sure we'll talk about that after the episode recap. This is Season 2, Episode 14, All Americans. Original broadcast date, January 17th, 1990. Written by Donald P. Belisario and Paul Brown. Directed by John Cullum. 
It's November 6, 1962, at El Camino High School in Woodland Hills, California. Sam leaps into the middle of a football game as star Mexican-American quarterback Eddie Vega, playing for the El Camino Jaguars. He receives the ball following a snap, but still disoriented from the leap and getting his bearings, Sam is immediately tackled by members of the opposing team. The ball is jolted free from Sam's hands and is caught by one of his teammates, Eddie's best friend Chewy Martinez, who runs the ball downfield. As Sam gets to his feet, Al is by his side, having arrived to watch the game. Chewy throws the ball back to Sam, who looks up to see more opposing team members rushing to tackle him again. Reacting quickly, Sam backs up and throws a wobbly, spiraling pass to Chewy, who neatly catches the ball, avoids the two defenders, and runs the ball in for a touchdown that wins the game for the Jaguars. Al compliments Sam on the shaky but effective pass. The two of them assume that Sam was there to win the game and wait for him to leap again. When it doesn't happen, Al consults the handling to see what else Sam may be there for. One of the Jaguar players approaches Sam and enthusiastically gives him the team's patented victory cheer by shouting, Roar, Jaguars! and slams his fist down on Sam's shoulders, knocking him to the ground. The team heads back to the locker room, and Chewie asks Sam if he saw the scouts in the crowd during the game. He tells Sam that the two of them have to stick together. Either they both get offered college scholarships or neither of them will go. The team coach approaches Sam and tells him that his pass to Chewie was the ugliest pass he's ever seen, then admits that he loved it and gives Sam the roar Jaguar salute. That night, Sam and Chewie are at a victory party at the housing complex where they live with their respective parents, Sam's father, Manuel, and Eddie's mother, Celia. Sam is flirted with by Carla, one of the El Camino High cheerleaders. Manuel warns Sam to stay away from her because he has to think about college and medical school, not girls. Celia arrives and Manuel tells her there were scouts at the game from UCLA, which has a good medical school. Celia is happy to hear the news until Manuel adds that there were also scouts from Southern California and Arizona at the game and that next week's championship game against the Bulldogs will have scouts from as far away as Texas. Sam notices Al and offers to go into the kitchen to get some more food so that he and Al can talk privately. Inside, Sam asks what's going to happen to Eddie. Al tells him that Eddie gets a football scholarship with UCLA, which will make Manuel very proud. Sam says Manuel seems interested in Celia, and Al explains that Celia was best friends with Eddie's mother, Rosa, who died while giving birth to Eddie's little sister, Maria. Celia never married, and Chewie thinks that his father accidentally died in Mexico before he was born. Celia illegally crossed the Mexican border into El Paso three days before giving birth to Chewie so he could be born in America. Sam is happy to hear that Chewie now has a promising life ahead of him thanks to Celia and his football skills. But Al has some bad news. Chewie is going to throw next week's game, costing the Jaguars the championship and ruining his chance at a scholarship. Later, Chewie finds Sam sitting alone and looking worried. He asks Sam what's wrong, and Sam asks him if he thinks the team can really win the championship game. Chewie thinks Sam is joking, but Sam says he's got a feeling that they're going to lose. Chewie tells Sam that they've been working too hard to lose the game and seems genuinely angry that Sam would suggest otherwise. Meanwhile, Manuel is telling Celia about the restaurant he's going to buy. Celia heads inside to get some more food and promises to bring an extra serving for Manuel. Manuel watches her go with a smile. Sam and Al are watching the party and Sam tells Al that there's no way Chewie is going to throw the championship game. Al insists that Chewie does throw the game, although they don't know why. Inside the house, Celia is surprised by Ruben, her landlord, who is there to collect $800 in back rent. Celia tells him that she isn't getting paid enough at her job to cover the rent and sadly admits that she doesn't have the money. 
Reuben suggestively tells her that she doesn't need the money because there are other ways she can pay him. He leans in to kiss her, but Celia tries to fend off his advances. Reuben tells her that he wants the money by noon tomorrow or she'll be evicted. Celia tearfully begs him to reconsider, assuring him that she'll get the money this week. Reuben asks her what will happen if she can't get the money and Celia has no answer. They move toward each other again, but are interrupted by the arrival of Sam and Chewie. Chewie asks Reuben if he bet on the game today. Reuben tells Celia that Chewie helped him win $1,000 on the game, although Sam nearly lost it for him with his horrible pass. Before leaving, Reuben tells Celia she has until Friday. Then he expects delivery one way or another. Chewie wants to know what Reuben was talking about, and Celia covers by saying that she's sewing some shirts for him. Sam and Chewie look at each other in confusion for a moment, then Chewie and Celia go back out to the party. Noticing Celia's worried expression, Sam decides to confront Reuben before he leaves. He thinks that Reuben is the reason he's there, and says that whatever is going on between Reuben and Celia is going to affect Chewie somehow. He tells Reuben to stay away from Celia and Chewie. Reuben mocks Sam for trying to act like a man, then threatens to start treating him like a man and leaves. The next day, Chewie approaches Sam at football practice and tells him the coach wants him to lead the team's calisthenics and to do it right, or he'll have to run 15 laps around the football field. Sam borrows Carla's record player and attempts to lead the team in an aerobics workout. Soon enough, the coach arrives and angrily orders Sam to run 15 laps. While Sam is running his laps, Al tells him that Reuben is a slumlord who owns several small houses and rents them at high prices to people who don't have anywhere else to go, mainly illegal immigrants like Celia. He also makes frequent bets on high school football and basketball games and is going to have Chewie throw the championship game against the Bulldogs. Sam still can't believe it, but Al insists that Chewie will only catch one pass in the entire game and the Jaguars will lose by five points. Chewie is in the locker room when Reuben comes in. He tells Chewie about Celia's rent problem and offers him a deal. If Chewie throws the game so Reuben can bet on the other team and win, he'll forget about the money Celia owes him. Sam arrives and confronts Reuben, and the two of them get into a fight, which is broken up by the coach. After the coach and Reuben leave, Sam tells Chewie that he can't throw the game. Chewie pretends not to know what Sam is talking about, but when Sam presses the issue, Chewie pleads with Sam not to throw him the ball. The day of the championship game arrives. The Jaguars run out onto the field, to the applause of their fans. Celia and Reuben are both in the crowd. Manuel is nearby working in his taco truck, listening to the game on the radio. The Bulldogs kick off, and the ball falls toward Sam and Chewie. Chewie avoids the ball, calling for Sam to catch it, which Sam does before quickly being tackled. Chewie helps Sam up, and the two of them stare at each other intently. Sam calls a play, and from the snap, throws a long pass to Chewie, who leaps and catches it successfully. Sam is pleased with Chewie's effort to win, until Chewie claims to be hurt and is assisted from the field. Celia looks concerned, while Reuben smiles. The game continues with Chewie sitting on the bench, and the Jaguars are not faring well. Chewie looks despondent as the Bulldogs dominate more and more of the game, and Sam tries in vain to keep the Jaguars in the contest. Sam is sitting on the bench when Al arrives, having been watching a Super Bowl game. The Jaguars are behind by five points, just as Al predicted, and the game is almost over. Sam explains how Chewie took himself out of the game, and Al tells Sam to do the same thing. Sam realizes that because Eddie and Chewie are so close, Chewie won't be able to watch his best friend ruining his own chance at a scholarship without doing something to help. Sam takes off his helmet and tells the coach that he can't play. Chewie is shocked and tries to convince Sam to change his mind. Chewie tells Sam not to throw to him, and the two of them re-enter the game together. Sam gets the team together in a huddle and calls a play in which he will throw the ball to Chewie. As the players take their positions, Chewie tells Sam that he'll drop the catch, to which Sam replies, that's up to you 
With one second remaining, Sam throws the ball, and Chewie tries to catch it, but it's out of his reach. The ball goes out of bounds, and the game is seemingly over before the referee flags an illegal play against the Bulldogs, giving the Jaguars another possession. Sam throws a long pass to Chewie, who catches the ball for a touchdown, winning the game and the championship for the Jaguars. In the stands, Manuel and Celia are ecstatic, while Ruben looks angry. Later, a victory party is happening outside Celia and Chewie's house. Sam wonders why he hasn't leaped yet, but when Ruben arrives accompanied by three men who go into the house to start removing Celia's belongings, Sam realizes he still has work to do. Ruben warns Sam that while he lost a lot of money on the championship game, Celia is going to lose more. Celia rushes over, accompanied by Chewie and Manuel, and begs Ruben not to kick her out. Manuel offers to pay Ruben the money Celia owes him, but Celia refuses, telling him that money is for the restaurant. She thinks it would be better to buy more taco trucks instead. And Al tells Sam that she's right, because their catering trucks could turn into a million dollar business, as long as Sam finishes this job. Sam tells the movers to put everything in Manuel's yard, and explains that if Manuel and Celia were to get married, then Celia and Chewie could move in with them. Celia tells Manuel that she wouldn't be marrying him just to solve her problems, because she loves him, and the two of them embrace. Ruben threatens to call immigration and turn in Celia as an illegal immigrant. Sam tells Chewie that because Manuel is an American citizen, the marriage will make Celia a legal citizen too. Al urges Sam to do it, and Sam spins around to give Ruben a roar jaguar salute. As his fists slam down on Ruben's shoulders, however, he suddenly leaps. And that recap was by Phil. Thank you, Phil. Always very well-written recaps. So, we finally have a date, possibly, when Al and Project Quantum Leap is in the future. January 28th, 1996, maybe. Well, that would be Super Bowl 30, right? Right. Well, we, at least we kind of got an idea. It's at least that date. Al right. could be watching it later with DVRs or even on home video of some sort, streaming service. Very true. But it's at least January 28th, 1996. It's cool that they gave us kind of an idea. Wasn't too far in the future then, in 1999. About six years. Yeah. Yeah, almost exactly, because it was uh, January 19th, I think this aired, in 1990. So yeah, I think that's probably why they did a football episode, too, because in January, it's kind of like football month. Well, dun, dun, okay. dun, dun. all through winter, it's pretty much football season. But <laughs> I have to admit, I do watch the Super Bowl. For the commercials. Right. Mostly for the commercials, maybe the halftime show, depending. I think I started when Michael Jackson did the halftime show. I was like, eh, I'll watch it. Michael Jackson. Commercials are cool. I've seen enough Super Bowls now that I understand how the game works, and I'm not against people enjoying football. I think, uh, you know, I looked really hard for a message or a meaning in this episode, and I don't think there's really a specific one that they're hitting you over the head with. I think it might be little things. I did find in this episode that um, it might have something to do with illegal immigrants being taken advantage of. Yeah, because Celia was definitely taken advantage of by her employer and her landlord. Right, because she didn't have any rights as a citizen. So uh, noticing that, and then again, my thoughts on high school football and high school sports in general, I have a weird opinion on them and probably not a lot of people share them, but I don't think it's a good idea as a society that we have those. Sports in high school? Right. Why? Well, if you think about it, in my opinion, it promotes people being separate and thinking that they're better where they live than other people in the next town over because they live over there and we live over here, so we're better. 
So this trains our young people to fight for their home territory and to think they are better than other people just because they live where they live and not where the other people live. I don't think it's a territorial thing. Well, football itself is all about, it's an analog to war, gaining ground, and then you get to the other end zone and then you win. But follow me on this. The reason I don't think it's good in high school is because, again, it teaches our kids to be almost separatists. So that extends to, if they have that same mentality that go us and the other guys are bad, then that can extend into our state is better than your state and create a civil war or our country is better than your country and go to war with people. And if people are trained from a young child to have that attitude just to be adversarial, then it's easy to convert that feeling and that training of their mind to go to war against another country and maybe possibly lose their life or kill other people while they're there. And if it was an elective thing, I think it would be okay. But uh, I remember my high school experience, you were forced to go to pep rallies and stuff like that to get behind your local team, even if you didn't want to go. I never thought it would be possible for someone to compare football to war. That was definitely a new idea for me. I can kind of see where you're coming from, but I went to two high schools. And when I switched to the other high school, I became a fan of that high school. Like for me personally, I went to football games and pep rallies and I wore my school colors and... Another thing that's an allegory for your country's colors. But that I did it because I was behind our team not to have anything to do with my school or my city because they were both in the same town. But I think it's just fun to root for your team. Like you're rooting for your team. I don't think it has anything to do with we're better than you other than to poke fun at that. I mean, I had friends in all different schools and there was never a, my school is better than your school. All the schools are the same. It was just, you got excited when your team won, but I don't think it was ever serious because once I graduated, I didn't hold that anymore. Like I didn't hold the, my school was better. I still, I don't root for my old high school football team anymore. It was just while I was there, I just rooted for my football team because I was friends with some of the players on the team. I, I don't think it's as serious as it maybe either once was or I don't know. I just I don't think it was ever that thought into. I think it was just fun. But I also think sports are good in school, not necessarily competitive ones, but I know a lot of kids who need to get out and do physical activities to exert themselves and to get all their anxiety and anger and all that stuff out. So I do think physical activity is a big part of growing up too. So sports are kind of a good thing too. I don't know. I'm not really a very competitive person. So maybe that's why I'm viewing it like this. Do you think children should be forced to go to pep rallies? <laughs> I'm probably not the person to ask that because well, I was whether in Whether you studio. like it or not, do you think people should be forced to go? I don't think we were... F- I don't know. It was it was fun. I See, I was part of the Student Government Association and I designed t-shirts and I was really excited about pep rallies and we just made them really fun. Well, what are pep rallies? So, well, in my school, we all got to dress up and it was part of not being in class Um, We got a whole period to not be in class. We all got to hang out with our friends and be with people and scream really loud. And what are you screaming about? Um, we were just cheering. Usually, it was a competition between freshmen, sophomore, junior, and uh, seniors 
who which class was the loudest and it was just I don't know fun we just had a good time I liked pep rallies when I was in school but that was probably because it was something we didn't go to class. Aren't the purpose of pep rallies, though, is to get you excited about your school and your colors and your team? Yeah, but I think it's all in fun. I don't think it's as serious. Right, as... it isn't fun. It's a it's a learning game you play to where your mind is conditioned later on in life to put your life on the line to defend your colors, your school, your group. If that's the case, it didn't work for me. No, but it does. <laughs> it does work for a lot of people. I'm just saying... That's what I got out of this episode and combine that with also Celia not having rights because there is a border between the two countries and it's not one pale blue dot. It's two separate countries and people that get caught in the middle like Celia get taken advantage of. On that note, I think that this episode was good because I think it gave you the behind the scenes look to what an illegal immigrant looks like. I mean, people can say, oh, they're taking our country and they're here to ruin our country, but they're- I think that's people that travel back in time. What? (laughs) South Park. Oh, no, I don't know. Sorry. Um, My whole thing is- we were all immigrants at one point. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a love one another kind of person. So I just think that people's idea of the word illegal immigrant, it's just not a, I, f- I feel like it's become a dirty word. I would say some people. Right. I feel like Celia represents someone who is trying to better her son's life. Like she nine months pregnant, which at that point you don't even want to move, let alone walk across sneak across the country border because she was motivated to give her son a better life like that shows the determination of being a mom and she's doing everything she can to get him into medical school she didn't tell him about the rent issue she didn't want to stress him out she was being a great mom and it sucks that she was getting underpaid and it sucks that Ruben was taking advantage of her when she was an honest person trying to be a good mom and do the best for her son. So I'm glad that it ended up working out for her. But I think also this episode kind of gave a behind the scenes look at maybe they're not here to take advantage of our country or to steal our jobs or whatever. They're here because they want a better life. And isn't that what we all want? Like you said, most of us in this country are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, unless you're Native American. That would be cool if there was an episode coming up about Native Americans. I feel like there probably is. (laughs) (laughs) There might be. But uh, yeah, so not a really heavy issue show, I don't think. But uh, that is definitely something that this show was about, which is uh, immigrants being taken advantage of, which is sad that some people see other people as less of a person and they can be taken advantage of. So I guess now that I'm saying it out loud and thinking about it, maybe this is a big issue. People being treated as less than human just because they're from another country. I think it was an underlying issue in this episode. Did you come up with any other issues in this episode? I think there was a big cause and effect kind of thing. Like one moment in your life can change the rest of your life. Like Chewie lost that game and obviously ruined the rest of his life. Maybe not ruined, but it affected the rest of his life because he lost that one game. He didn't get a scholarship to college. He obviously didn't go to medical school. I'm sure him and his mom struggled for the rest of their lives when he won the game, got a scholarship. That was a defining moment. And of course, I'm sure he didn't think of it like that. He just thought of in the now, right now, I need to help my mom. But 
it was funny because if I was in the episode, <laughs> I would have been like, listen, you lose this one game, you and your mom have the next few months rent free. You win this game, you become a doctor, buy your mom a new house. That's it. Like those are the choices that you have. And I know that we can't ever see them like that because you don't ever realize that there's one moment that can make your life the best it could possibly be or ruin everything that you would ever dream of. And it's kind of crazy that one moment can do that to you. And in this episode, it really highlighted it, especially when Chewie dropped the ball and then the flag got thrown. I was like, this is it. The flag gets thrown and something clicks in his head because it felt so bad. He got a glimpse of how bad it felt to lose. And he got a second chance, which doesn't usually happen. So I think that that kind of goes to show like you have to look at the big picture instead of just doing what you want to do right now. Well, in the last episode, you brought up the question, why Kevin? Why was his life important? So that had me thinking while I watched this episode, why Chewy? And since they had mentioned he goes to medical school, then I thought how many lives could he have saved and changed and made better? And who knows what he might have developed being a doctor that might go on to cure how many people. So that might be why Chewy in this episode. Yeah, that's very true. Because going from a few months of rent for free or getting a scholarship and going to medical school, like those are opposite sides of the spectrum, you know, and it ended up being even better because their parents got married and they have their taco trucks instead of the one restaurant. And there were so many better decisions that came out of this than what would have happened in the first timeline with Sam being there, the parents getting married. So then Celia's an American now with the taco trucks, with Chewie going to medical school. I mean, that whole family's life is changed from that moment that Sam fixes everything on for the better. I mean, complete opposites. Sam is really getting good at fixing everything. The last few moments of the episode, he fixes I don't know how many things in a row. Yeah. And it was really nice. And I think he has more confidence in himself and his ability to affect people's lives for the better. So he just can say, okay, now this, now that. And yeah, I think he's starting to get the hang of this leaping thing. And to even connect with that, to leap into someone running at you to tackle you, (laughs) that's pretty crazy. But he seemed to adjust pretty well. I can't imagine going into someone else's life and making big decisions for them. But the way that Sam figured out to sit out in the game was the smartest thing ever because you know you would sacrifice yourself before any of your friends or family and then when someone else is going to make a bad decision it's easier for you to see you're like oh it's okay if i don't get a scholarship but when your friend's like fine i'm not going to get one either you're like okay no that's not okay <laughs> which is silly that we put ourselves last like that but That was a very good plan on Sam's part. There was a lot of good setups and payoffs in this episode. Like we go to college together. We get a scholarship together. That enabled Al and Sam to come up with that at the end. Right. And you had mentioned when he leaps in getting tackled. This is the first episode that I can think of where Al is there right away. Oh, yeah. Because he's usually at least trying to ask the person. Maybe it's because it's a younger kid. He was more upfront with the information. That could be the only explanation. Or maybe they're getting better at tracking Sam. Maybe. I don't know. It's one of those weird things they don't explain. I didn't find it odd until multiple viewings. 
I think you had mentioned something about Al being there right away, but maybe he just didn't want to miss out on that action of the, you know, Sam getting tackled in the football game. (laughs) That was a funny opening. Yeah. I loved the character of Celia in this episode. She was an awesome mom. She just seemed like a really nice person. I loved her overprotective mom. Like, you're going to go to Texas? What? The only person I disliked was the person I was supposed to, which was Ruben, because he was being just a horrible person. Could you imagine trying to, I don't know, what would you call that, extortion? Just the way he was trying to take advantage of Celia because she owed him rent and he thought he could take advantage of her. I I didn't like that. He was a slime ball. I'm sure that kind of stuff has happened, but... I think he just was on like a power trip there. I think you had mentioned he's kind of a bully. Oh, definitely. That's another thing that was prevalent in this episode. He is definitely a bully. He's got a rap sheet, bully, gambler, (laughs) uh, slumlord. But he definitely was bullying both Celia and Chewie, giving them horrible choices and... He was so mean. And then he was like, oh, you don't have to pay me. You can just, you know. I was very offended by that, that he did that. And I felt really bad for Celia because I don't know what she could have done in that situation. She was very desperate and she was trying to do the best for her and her son. And I really felt for her in that situation. Yeah. And I'm glad that she didn't just give in to his bullying. But there was a point there where she actually was starting to go to kiss him. And that shocked me as well. I think that she was afraid of him, though, in that moment, because she started crying. He had her by the hair and it was a scary moment. I like that little line she had about, uh, I will give you something. I will write you a check. I mean, if that was you, what would you do in that situation? I would hope that I could fight him off because I feel like, It would be morally wrong. And I also feel like Manuel would be really upset if he knew that she had given in to him. I feel like Manuel would have been upset also if he found out that she had given in to his bullying. I was a little bit confused about their situation, Manuel and Celia. Were they dating or were they just fond of each other? My understanding is that she stepped in to be kind of a pseudo mom, the mother role model kind of role in Maria's life. Because she was right there to step in when Rosa died. So I feel like they became kind of a family just by default. And they just kind of fell in love with each other by accident. But nobody really wanted to say anything because it wasn't like a typical relationship. I've heard before, like in arranged marriages, that you ended up learning to fall in love with that person. Not that I'm a fan of, you know... But I feel like this is kind of similar to that because they were both kind of placed in this situation. She stepped in to kind of help him take care of the kids, it looked like. And I think that it just was a natural attraction that grew. But I don't think there was anything going on with them because of the way he looked at her and she just kind of brushed him off. Not not in a rude way or anything. She was just like, yeah, I'll make you extra food. Like they were just flirting with each other but i don't think that there was anything physical going on or like that it had actually been spoken about until the end of the episode where she said i wouldn't marry you to fix my problems because i feel like that's the first time she told him because he obviously was head over heels for her but i think that was the first time that she admitted it to him so they were both in love with each other it was just it took this moment and for Sam to say something for them to both admit it to each other. Right. And when they 
both found out that each other felt the same, then that was my favorite moment of the episode. It gave me goosebumps. Yeah, it was so sweet. It was like the added bonus to this episode. It was just two really nice people finding each other. Well, because in the beginning of the episode, I think you assume that they're a family. And then you find out that they're not, but you watch him fall head over heels for her the whole episode. So it was definitely a nice ending to the episode. Go, Sam. I think that's what made the episode for me, the ending. Oh, yeah. And everything, all the loose ends got tied at the end. And it, it was good. And then that last roar jaguars to Ruben was just the icing on the cake. My connection to another mother that I thought is probably a little stretched. Okay. But when Sam's at the end eating a taco and Al standing next to him, he says, a man's work is never done. And Sam says, don't you mean a woman's work is never done? And it kind that little moment kind of just put another mother in my head. Like it just, for some reason, reminded me of another mother. That would have been a great setup if another mother was after this episode. No, but the color of truth is after this episode. That's right. We get to see Jesse Tyler in the next episode. So I'm excited. I think Sam's going to be good at this one. Should we do another podcast episode on that? <laughs> I think it gets worse every time that happens. <laughs> like every single time that that happens, I'm like, seriously. By the last time he leaps into Jesse Tyler, he's probably just going to put his face in his palm. Be yeah. like, again? He'd be like, you know, I'm just going to sit at this counter. I'm not even going to leave. It's almost like Groundhog Day. <laughs> but who knows? It might have been written before another mother and the production schedule or the airing schedule might have changed. I, I have no idea, but that would have been a good setup, I think. So let's talk about the episode specifics. Okay. Can we start with the fact that there is a new saga cell? I like that. The stereo one with Deborah Pratt. It's like weird sounding. It's great in the ear pods. Didn't notice that, but I'm a girl. Um, <laughs> But it, it it's d definitely different and it is way more detailed and they kind of explain more and they show the facility more. Yeah, it's a building out in the middle of the desert. I always pictured it in a cave. I don't know why. Hmm. New Mexico desert. I just figured it was like underground or secret. Well, I just know that it's definitely different. So I like it, though. I like the new explanation. I feel like it's a more in-depth explanation for people just starting to watch the show. Which is important because back then, if you didn't see it up to that point, you might be confused. Yeah, and I think some of our crew started watching around this episode. So that's awesome that it, there's a new explanation. Plus, I think it sounds better. Sam is in the acceleration chamber longer. He actually walks into the CO2. Right. Yeah, Deborah Pratt's voice is great. Oh, yeah. We're big fans of her, though. <laughs> yes. Did you notice that there's a lot of what looks like stock footage? I don't know that it is, but it's definitely a different quality of film than the shots of Sam and the teammates. And then they go to the crowd and it's like fuzzy. There was a couple shots the first viewing where they were a little bit more bleached out than the rest of the film. And I thought those were stock footage. But after you mentioned it and seeing it again and again... Definitely a lot of stock footage. And they did a really good job matching up the stock footage with the footage they shot. I think the easiest way to tell is big shots of the crowd where you see the whole bleachers. Those are stock footage. When you see the characters in the episode that we know, they're surrounded by maybe three people on each side and it's a really tight shot in the crowd. With just thinking they didn't have enough budget to have a crowd full of people. If you can save money, why not? Yeah, I mean, they even matched the uniforms to the cheerleader outfits in the... The football costumes, they matched those to the ones yeah. in the stock footage really good. That's why I was fooled. I mean, it worked for me. And if it was uh, 
1990 and I was watching on a standard definition, I wouldn't have known the difference. See, at first I thought they kind of did it to make it look like an old style football team kind of thing, like a 1960s football feel to it. But then it went back to high quality (laughs) and I was like, oh, I don't know. There was a lot of stock footage used in this episode and I tried to find out where that football footage came from. Maybe another movie or a television show, but mm, could not find out. Maybe someone's home video. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it just might have been stock footage shot for stock footage sake. You know, people shoot it and sell it. Well, and this is actually part of our trivia from later. But at the party, after Sam gets the Coke for Carla, there's like a party scene where everyone's dancing and it's just kind of like a stock shot. It is actually from the movie La Bamba. Awesome. So that stock footage is from La Bamba. <laughs> and the guy on the bike is Isai Morales. From La Bamba. That's yeah. awesome. That's almost uh, another connection to a f- other episode with Buddy Holly. And they did play La Bamba in the aerobic scene. Did they play that on all the all the versions? Do we find I out? I don't know. I only watched the Netflix version, but they show a shot of the 45 that says La Bamba on it. So if they changed the song, they probably would have had to cut that little bit of the scene or it just made no sense. <laughs> this doesn't sound like La Bamba. <laughs> now I'm curious to watch the musically butchered one. Uh, there was nice connections. And of course, there was the twist playing at the party, which was a connection to Good Morning Peoria with Chubby Checker. So yeah. I'm seeing a lot of uh, connections, which I love. I almost wish that there was a little second that Sam like looked away remembering the chubby checker part. You know what I mean? Like when he heard the twist in the background, he just like had a moment and someone said, what's wrong? And he'd be like, oh, nothing. I just thought of something. You know, like I feel like that would have been a cool thing to acknowledge, but obviously not. Well, I had a thought while watching this. Now, obviously, I've seen the show before and I know what happens in the big picture, but I'm trying to watch it again with new eyes almost. So I was thinking with all these connections, is it possibly something like a Life on Mars situation without spoiling that for other people, but people who have seen that and Quantum Leap, I was wondering maybe something like that might be going on I love that we are going to talk about something without spoiling it. That's interesting. Well, if it, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but I think if you know what I'm talking about, you would understand what I'm saying. What do well, you isn't think? Well, there two separate endings to Life on Mars anyway? The UK version and the American reboot version, they were similar. Well, that could be possible. It would definitely be. It would explain a lot. Right. When you're having like, oh, I can't even talk about that. <laughs> about that one time that we're not going to mention. But in 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 that note, who thinks that I shouldn't go to the the quantum leap panel? <laughs> I, it's funny because I'm I'm very surprised I haven't been spoiled about this show yet. So thanks to everybody who has not spoiled me. I try to stay out of the quantum leap group as much as possible. But much like in football, you have a strong defensive team protecting you in one and Hayden and now Phil and everyone protecting you. I even went to read a quantum leap article. And I think David said no. Right. Well, I, I said, I really want to read this. I posted on his, his page. I really want to read this. But I asked Albie first and he said no. <laughs> so Everybody's looking out for you. Yeah, because I feel like to be true to this role that I have in the podcast of being like the newbie, I feel like if I knew the ending, it really wouldn't be the same uh, the way I view things. If I was watching this show when it originally aired, that would have been one of my theories at this point because of all the connections. So that's not the ending. Or you're not telling me. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) But I don't think I would have brought it up if it was. Very true. 
I'm I'm excited because I it's like I want to watch it all to find out the ending to see if he makes it home or to see what's different when he gets home. You know, and like I can't wait and it sucks because I know that it's there. You know, like it's like the last page of the book and you're reading a book and you're like, "I just want to know what the oh. But I think it'll be so much better if I don't get spoiled and I make it to the end. It'll be so much more rewarding. I thought it was funny that Al mentioned a $10 hooker in this episode. <laughs> I'm surprised that Al doesn't mention a $10 hooker in every episode. Um, what did he say? Not pretty, but it gets the job done. <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but that's Al for you. You know, that's his character. And we're okay with that. I like the mirror work in this episode. They did really good. Your theory was that they're standing next to each other, right? Right. Because the mirror of the angle is slightly off, which you can't really tell from the angle the camera is unless you thought about it a lot which they tried to do in jimmy right but we saw the other one it's getting better all the time right and production wise talking about saving money this is a much easier way than building a complete mirrored set on the other side of a mirror yeah it's definitely easier too speaking of kind of that locker room scene in the football team the really tall large high school student that was 45 years old. Right. We talk about the fact that what was he doing on the football team? Again, they went from 28-year-old high school students to 40-year-old high school students. I mean, okay, maybe he's 30, but there's no way <laughs> he's 17. Carla, no way high school age. Any of these people, there's no way they were high school age. Maybe Eddie, the mirror Eddie. 282, maybe a college student. <laughs> maybe, right. Just because he was a smaller guy, he could get away for being younger. But to a point to where when Chewie and Celia were in the same scene, I couldn't believe for one second that she was old enough to be his mother. Well, she probably was a young mom. But still, she looked really good if, what are we talking, 19 and 15? I'm hoping that I look that good when my kid's in high school. But yeah, I, I kind of thought that too. And I know we've talked about it before, you know, the older high school students probably in the last episode even, but that guy, there was no way he was in high school. I liked the little part about the Diet Irregular Cola. I'm assuming it was a generic cola because the label that was on the bottle was just white tape over the either the Coke or the Pepsi logo. Yeah, I you would think in an episode like this, it would be like, give me a Coke and you just have a Coke, not a cola. I don't know, it's weird. Maybe you have to clear the rights. But it's just uh, name brands. They usually put a fake label over something and it'll say cola or soda, but it just had white tape over it. Like a last minute, you got to cover that logo up. It's like when they color in the Publix logo on Good Eats on Alton Brown's like salt and butter. <laughs> yeah, but you know it's from Publix if you have a Publix in your area. Right. Great show, Good Eats. The Alton Brown cast, check it out. It's a good show. The food in this episode, it made me hungry. I want to eat the... What are they called? Tortilletas. Yes. I want those. And I want to try the tacos. It made me very hungry for tacos. I don't want to try the menudo. I don't know what that is. It's Did soup made with tripe and oh, yeah, no, hominy no. grits. No, no, no. I heard about the tripe. Yeah. Once you mention tripe, I'm out. But yeah. the rest of the stuff sounded good. Looks like Sam was out when tripe was mentioned too. <laughs> he's like, he's still having flashbacks from the chitlins that he's going to enjoy again in the next episode. <laughs> But it was funny that he mentioned it being a pop group. Uh, did you know Ricky Martin was one of the members of Menudo? They keep changing him all the time. It still exists, but new members all the time. Oh, well, you got to keep it going, right? It was very popular back in the early 90s, late 80s, I remember. <laughs> I think that it was funny that Sam was like, there's a pop group in here? And she was like, what is a pop group? Did you notice? Now, it could be a fluke, but there was no sound when Al 
came into the shot when he told Sam to go into the kitchen to get the salsa. I think he was at the party before he came up to Sam. Right. That was my explanation because he said he was checking out the cheerleaders, which is weird because he's now starting to hang out in other locations. Like in the earlier episodes, he would come in and go out and come in and go out through a door being yanked out. That was the thing. He didn't walk around. Hey, I was next door at the neighbor's house checking out the woman. That wasn't a thing. And starting in these recent episodes, he's like hanging out with Teresa, checking out the cheerleaders. Like he's hanging out, (laughs) getting to know the place. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with at first they were struggling to get their bearings. But now both Al and Sam have what they do down. So they can relax and be a little bit more comfortable. Like after a few years at a job, you act totally different than when you're brand new. I think it's the same thing. Do you think that when Al is in Sam's time, that it's in real time? Like if he's in Sam's time for a half hour, it's a real half hour in the future? Do you mean when Al is specifically with Sam? Yes. Then yes. I believe then their time is passing at the same speed, if that's what you're asking. That is what I'm asking. Because he is pretty much there majority of the time. So he's like got no life at home. That we see. Sam, when he goes to bed, is Eddie Vega. Al's not going to be just standing in the bedroom playing with his hand link. Hey, <laughs> this is a family show, okay? Yeah, I guess you're right. We, we really don't see him sleeping very much in the show. It's not like a 24-hour Sam watch. I just feel like Al's got it pretty hard if he's basically always at work. Because he has to be. He's the only one that can be there for Sam. He's definitely on call. But I feel like he's just at the facility the whole time. Well, if you're in the middle of the New Mexico desert, there's not probably a lot of places to be other than that. Which definitely leads to the question, why was the LED earring chick in the middle of the New Mexico desert standing on the side of the road? My guess is that it's Tina and they were doing some kind of role play thing Okay. that married couples do. They meet up at a bar and they say, hey... What are you doing here? What's your sign? Is that how people pick up people? I don't know. I don't know. Do married couples do that? <laughs> On television, they do. Oh, okay. So I think that's what was happening there. I'm not sure, but that's my impression. I learned some new Spanish words in this episode. Better than caution? <laughs> yes. And uh, just so I didn't get anything wrong, like I did in A Portrait for Troyan when I said wet money instead of wet floor, which Juan corrected me on, I had Juan go through the episode. I would rather slip on wet money than wet floor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wet or dry, I'll take it, right? <laughs> but Juan was kind enough to go through the episode for us and translate everything in Spanish into English so we had a better understanding of it. Which will be available on our website if you're curious. So I learned some words and I used them at work today. Good job. To see if I did any good. So I was like, nice pomelos. Did you get smacked in the face? Almost, but I got a giggle instead. Uh, I was going to say, unless she was making fruit salad. (laughs) (laughs) Melon. (laughs) I said mojita and mijo, uh, meaning young boy or young girl. And my friend that speaks Spanish said that specifically when you mean your child. So that's another level that I didn't know. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, Where I work, I have a Spanish-speaking friend, a Mandarin-Chinese-speaking friend, and a Portuguese-speaking friend. And I try my best to speak almost exclusively in their language so I learn them. I just learn dirty words from your your friends that speak other languages. Yes, you do. I, I, I don't start with those. I start with the simple ones. More fun that way. But I have to say that really helped during this episode because a lot of it I understood as we were going along. Not everything. So Juan's translation really did help out. 
I think that a lot of the things you could use kind of the context clues to figure it out kind of like when she called him Mio or Miho, I kind of figured it was like son or boy, you know, like it was it was a loving term for him. But a lot of these I knew, of course, Al would say Mikasa Esukasa. And I think everybody who listened to Ricky Martin knows what loco means. <laughs> or uh, Shakira, loco, loco, loco. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Where do you stand on buying a restaurant versus food trucks? Would you rather eat at a restaurant or a food truck? Me, having worked in the food service industry, I try to avoid both restaurants and food trucks. I want to eat at a food truck so bad. Food trucks are actually becoming really popular, which is kind of funny because this episode aired in 1990 and Al predicted that they would do better business with food trucks. But they're like a big thing. I actually, one of my friends wants to have a food truck at her wedding. They're like a thing now. In bigger cities, they actually have like food truck days where all the food trucks kind of get together and there's like a big celebration. And even at Disney and downtown Disney now, they have food trucks there. That's pretty cool. Maybe I'll try it. I get a little scared. I feel like they have less food sitting out and less food altogether. So, And maybe usually the person running the food truck might be the owner of the business. So he might take it more seriously and it might be safer. And I feel like with mom and pop restaurants and food trucks are different than corporate restaurants anyway, because I feel like they're number one goal isn't numbers. So I feel like food trucks probably have more of a mom and pop restaurant kind of feel and they care about the food that's going out. A lot of actually new age food and vegan food and healthy food are going through food trucks probably because they want to buy more ingredients, better ingredients. And it's probably cheaper to run a food truck so you can buy the better options Because you're not paying servers, you're not paying a dishwasher, you're not paying cooks, you're just doing, here's your food, here, here, I cooked you your food and you're done. Plus the menu's smaller. If you're looking at it from a monetary standpoint, it's definitely better to get a food truck than a restaurant. I knew a person who owned a hot dog cart, so I stopped eating at those. I think it also (laughs) depends on who runs it. (laughs) It does depend on the person. Is Taco Vega a thing? I don't know, but it sounded like it should be a thing. It definitely should. It sounds good. It has a nice ring to it. I want to eat at a Taco Vega truck now, if we see one ever. I bet you someone was watching this and said, that's a great name for our taco truck. So there probably is a Taco Vega. I'm glad that they become a successful million dollar business. This family definitely doing a lot better than the first timeline. There's a couple things that might have bothered me in the episode. One was Ruben's mustache. Other than my normal aversion to mustaches, it seemed to change during the episode. I don't know if it was just combed differently, groomed differently, or it was not a real mustache. You said it might have been the lighting. Yeah, because I think you mentioned something during the darker scene when they're out by the car. And at that point, I thought it was the lighting. But who knows? I don't like mustaches either. The biggest thing about this episode, if you have ever sat down and searched on the internet for Quantum Leap XXX, the first... (laughs) Because that's what I do. Oh, you know. The first thing that comes up is this episode about Quantum Leap because of the connection to Super Bowl Thirty. Oh, huh. XXX. That's actually part of our trivia later, but let's talk about it. But it's super exciting that... It's super exciting. I get it. <laughs> but it really is because they correctly, five years before it happened, predicted... I want to get the term right because I'm not sport literate. Um, the point spread correctly? Because Al says 
one of the teams is up by three points, and it happens twice in the game. But he specifically says who's playing, too. One of the teams, I think. So the Steelers were down by three, is what Al says. And that happened in real life. Right, three times. So very amazing. It's almost like the teams got together and said, you know what, we like Quantum Leap, we're going to do what they said. It's pretty cool. Because as soon as he said that, I was like, did you Google that? Is that really, did that end up happening? (laughs) Because I didn't believe that it would have been true. But it's so cool that, number one, the Steelers were in the Super Bowl. The whole fact that it all worked out. If you would have bet on that just because you had watched Quantum Leap, you would have won a whole bunch of money. I feel like Don Belisario was like patting himself on the back that day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of times they say in shows about the future, they usually say near future so they don't get too much wrong. And whatever predictions they make hardly ever come true. Except Star Trek and their technology. (laughs) Actually, it's coming true way too soon. Yeah. So that's almost bad there. But stuff like Back to the Future, 2015 is months away as we record this podcast. And I don't see those things happening in the next few months. But you know that there's people in a warehouse somewhere like, we got to get these hoverboards out by next year. They have them. They just don't work. But they have a deadline. So they're really trying, I'm sure. That would be cool. I can't say that it won't come true because we're not there yet, but we're pretty close. But I feel like that Nike is working on those shoes. They have them. But the self-buckling part, they have see, them. okay, so. We're getting there. So what don't we have? The, the hoverboards, hoverboards and hover conversion. Well, see, they, they just have to fix that in the next few months. Wouldn't it be cool if like December 15th, 2014, they're like brand new technology? They got to do it because you know that there are some Back to the Future fans out there working on hover technology just because next year is 2015. They've been working on it since the 90s trying to figure out how they can get it to work by 2015. I'm just saying kudos to Don Belisario and Paul Brown for coming up with writing the future. Yeah. Which makes me think that's too big a connection. And maybe I'm in something like Life on Mars. How do I play into that then? <laughs> You're the blonde. Oh, okay. Also, let's talk about the director for this episode. Really cool. I feel like I've read his name before. John Cullum. <laughs> oh. He was in an episode of Quantum Leap a few shows back. He played Don Quixote in Catch a Falling Star, so that was great. He had that great line about, you, sir, are an imposter. He played John O'Malley in that episode, so it was great that he came back to direct this episode. Yeah, he obviously liked this show. (laughs) So overall, how did you feel about All Americans? I liked this one. I I definitely like the feel of this episode. I think that's why I liked it. The camaraderie and just the feel of like family and how powerful friendship is now that you say the feel i think that's what i liked about it as well just the happy ending the connection that manuel and celia made and i love the scene with al and sam at the party where they just got a few minutes to talk to each other as themselves without sam having to act like he's someone else they just got a moment to connect and i like when they have that connection i really like this episode i'm glad you say that because i i really like this one too i mean i like all of them there hasn't really been one that i didn't like i mean i like them all kind of in a whole because there's something i like about all of them but i really liked the feel of this one i feel like when it was over i was like happy like (laughs) i was just like oh this wasn't a good episode I was a little trepidatious coming into this episode, but the more I watched it, the more I liked it. It wasn't about football. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. There was some football in there. It was about family and friends. It could have been 
any sport. It could have been any profession and it could have been any culture. The message, though, was like family and taking care of your own kind of feel like that was the main feel of this episode because really it was sam slash eddie's job to take care of chewy and salia and their families and that's really what it was all about so what do you think we can take away from this episode as the main lesson or moral we learned i think that your friends and family are the most important you got to take care of them and also look at the big picture yeah and uh maybe treat other people as equals yeah that's a good one too Maybe. Don't be a slumlord, slime ball. <laughs> if you see people being taken advantage of, try to do something about it, maybe. It's, it's nothing very specific, but I think we can take a little bit away from it. I definitely think that it was a good episode, though. It might not have been a major social issue episode, like the next Color of Truth episode we're going to watch again. But I definitely think that it was a very family-oriented episode. Love the characters, love the episode. It will be in my list when I rewatch them. And I think rewatching this one changed your opinion of it as a whole. That was the scene in California's Mojave Desert five years ago. Our historic first view of the newcomer's ship. Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment. But they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles. Alienation, the newcomers podcast, is a fan cast devoted to the groundbreaking but short-lived TV series Alienation. This series tackles social issues like racism, bigotry, and intolerance with an alien twist. Each month, we will bring you a podcast dedicated to a single episode. The host will give you their thoughts on the episode, as well as some little-known behind-the-scenes information. So please subscribe to Alienation, the newcomer's podcast on iTunes, or visit our website at alienationpodcast.com. Are you troubled by the strange ending to Sherlock? Do you experience feeling of dread while waiting for Doctor Who to return? Have you or your family actually seen Orphan Black, Person of Interest, or Sleepy Hollow? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Log in to the home of all things geek, the Earth Station One Network. Our podcasts are on call 24 hours a day to serve all your geek needs. The ESO Network will be right there. We're ready to geek out with you. Be part of the crew at ESOnetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at ESOnetwork.com. That preview was for the Earth Station One podcast, and guess who was a guest on their latest episode? It wasn't me. Episode 227. I guest star as a Quantum Leap expert. Wow. Look wow. at you, fancy pants. How about that? I Yeah, I got the invitation to be on their podcast and talk about Quantum Leap, and any chance I get to talk about Quantum Leap with anyone, I'll take it. So I really had a good time talking with those guys. It was nice. So check out their episode 227. There'll be links in our show notes. I've been listening to them nonstop, their Dragon Con episodes, so I can prepare myself for Dragon Con. So those are also good episodes to listen to if you're heading to Dragon Con with us. But that's awesome that you get to go on this show because they seem like really cool guys. They were really cool guys. And uh, they like all the same stuff I like. Star Trek, Quantum Leap, 
science fiction, and all about Dragon Con. So you guys basically just sat around and talked about Quantum Leap. It was awesome. That is really cool. So please check it out. It has a spoiler level of the whole series. So Heather's not allowed to listen. Not yet. Maybe in a couple years. <laughs> Need to start a list of things that I can do once we finish the series. <laughs> theme song for Ally McBeal? It is. We have a little bit of a Kickstarter going. Oh, yeah? If you go to kickstarter.com and uh, search Ally McBeal or click on the links from quantumleappodcast.com, we have a Kickstarter going for the Ally McBeal podcast. We're looking to do that full-time in addition to the Quantum Leap podcast. And if it gets fully funded, we will be able to do that. And that would be great. More time to spend with our listeners. Yeah, I haven't seen that show since I was like a little kid when it was on the first time, so. It's fun to do a Kickstarter and we'll see what happens. If you can't contribute to our Kickstarter, help us out by sharing it to get the word out. Let people know and send our link to people that you think might be able to publicize our Kickstarter so we can do more of what we love, which is watch TV and talk about it. It's not exactly about time travel, but she did hallucinate a lot. Dancing babies. Right. I'm really excited because I liked it when I was younger. I love the show. Yeah, it looks fun and I'm, I'm excited to rewatch it. So help us out by sharing our Kickstarter for the Allie McBeal podcast. This is Darren Dalton and you're listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. It's that time of the show. Now, Albie's going to talk to David Campetti, who is the publisher for Innovation Comics, which published the Quantum Leap comic books that we have been giving out as our prizes for our giveaway. In 1988, David Campetti founded Innovation Publishing. As publisher and editor-in-chief, Innovation became number four in the market share below only Marvel Comics, DC Comics, and Dark Horse. They were responsible for many TV tie-in comic books, including Beauty and the Beast, Dark Shadows, Lost in Space, and our favorite, Quantum Leap. In 1993, David resigned from innovation to launch Glass House Graphics, where he holds the position of CEO and Global Talent Supervisor. David is on the board of Red Giant Entertainment, and now he is producing and performing for animated films such as Nico, The Journey to Magica. He resides in Florida with his wife, Meryl Jinky Coronado Campetti, who herself is a writer and artist, best known for Bonsai Girls and Avalon High. She is also a lingerie bikini model, twice featured in FHM and other publications. They have a child, Jasmine, together. And now here's Albie's conversation with David Campetti. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Mr. Campetti. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Well, I'm happy to be here. This is really cool. The Quantum Leap comics are something a lot of the fans like because it expands the Quantum Leap universe. How did the creation of the Quantum Leap comics come about? And if you could just tell me what you remember. I know it was a long time ago, but maybe the idea of doing it all the way to actually publishing it. Oh, sure. Let's see. Uh, we're going back about 23 years here, I guess. And uh, my, my company at the time, Innovation, was already into doing licensed comics. We were just coming out with uh, uh, a bunch of things, uh, adaptations of best-selling novels, you know, Anne Rice's Vampire Lestat, and we had 
things by Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, Terry Pratchett, uh, 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 Piers Anthony, and a whole bunch of others. And I also went after uh, some of my favorite TV shows or cult favorites. So we were doing uh, Lost in Space, uh, Dark Shadows, Beauty and the Beast. So, of course, Quantum Leap had to be part of that. So I, I went after it, which wasn't too complicated, because I already had a working relationship with the folks at uh, Universal Studios. So uh, we did our pitch of what we'd do in terms of stories and uh, the type of artists that we would use and so forth. And we got the thumbs up from Universal and from uh, the Quantum Leap producers, and we were off and running. How much were Don Belisario and or Deborah Pratt involved in uh, stories, ideas, or in the comics themselves? Yeah, in, in, the, in the stories themselves, none. Uh, we were given uh, the series Bible of what, uh, what they were doing for the show, and we saw some interesting things that they were not allowed to do for the show. Some things were budgetary, and some were just because uh, the network didn't want to see those subjects done on the TV show. So, of course, being a rascal that I am, I asked the obvious question, could we do those subjects for the comic book? Because it's not going to appear on the TV show, and uh, we're not limited by a TV show's budget to do some of the more fanciful stuff. And we got the answer, yes, you can do them for the comic. So that's how we, we ended up doing stories like uh, the one about the game show rigging of the 1950s. Apparently that was a sore spot with the network, so uh, we went about it the right way for the licensed comic and put together a very nice story that we got a writer who wrote for the game shows. Uh, he, he was a writer on Jeopardy, and he knew all about the, the game show scandals of the 50s. In fact, had made it a point to learn about it when he went into that part of the business. So he came at it with a whole lot of knowledge so that it came across accurately. And uh, they mentioned Jeopardy in there, too, that Sam had been on Jeopardy, so that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, as for the show itself, it was pretty cool because, I'm, I mean, Jeopardy, because if memory serves, our comic book got mentioned on Jeopardy, uh, both the Quantum Leap comic and the Lost in Space comic, which was a video daily double one day. Oh, wow. The Quantum Leap comics were coming out at the same time the series was on. Is there anything that you wanted to do that you couldn't do because they were already thinking of doing that as a TV show? You know, we never got into that kind of problem. In fact, we were very pleased that the producers and the licensing part of the company were both liking the ideas very much. I think we ended up, if memory serves, it might have been issue 12 of the book that was drawn by Mike Diodato, who went on to become a superstar artist at Marvel. And the story involved Sam meeting Marilyn Monroe. Now, if memory serves, they later did a different Marilyn story on the show itself. But they didn't give us any difficulties about the fact that we were tripping over anything. And that they okayed the story. We weren't even told they were doing a Marilyn story. But I guess it all worked out. Uh, how successful were the comics, I guess, in terms of sales and fan reaction to them? Well, you know, if they hadn't been selling, the book wouldn't have lasted long. But uh, the, the book lasted as long as I was running Innovation. Now, uh, people may recall that the company started publishing in 89, and I think the last books came out in early 94. I had left Innovation 
about 10 months earlier, in March of 93. So everything that I had in, uh, uh, that was finished was still coming out. A really talented writer-artist by the name of George Broderick was the uh, editor of most of the stories. And he was very much in love with the show. So he knew all the ins and outs and was bringing in a bunch of good writers. He was a smart guy that figured out the right writer for the right type of story. Um, Oh, here's one. You may remember that the last episode of the TV show wasn't really a favorite for a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. I remember getting a lot of feedback that people were unhappy with the way that that story ended. So uh, the one story that I was to be a writer of, if innovation had gone on beyond the the time I was there, uh, if it had lasted into 1994, I would have written a three-part Quantum Leap story that touched on things that they couldn't afford to do in the show. They had always wanted to do a story where Sam was a baby but they couldn't do all the effects of the giant props and all that and make it work on a television budget. So I came up with the idea of what if Sam leaped into the same person at three important different points in the person's life. So he got to do the baby story as part one. Uh, In part two, he ends up uh, leaping into the person again as a teen and, and, you know, the, the, the problem in school and love interest and that sort of thing. But the third part, the crucial part of this, was Sam, in part three of the story, leaps into the guy, and when he looks up, he is in a giant convention center. Imagine Comic-Con. <laughs> a giant convention center. All these people around whose faces he recognizes. And he looks up, and there's this gigantic sign with his face, Sam Beckett's face, up there, welcome to the Universal Church of Sam. All these people were folks that at different points he had leapt into. And uh, if, if you'll recall, when they would end up in the imaging chamber being questioned, that they would look up and they could see the face reflected back at them in the metal, and it was Sam's face they were seeing. And all they knew is when their life went back to normal and they were back into themselves, their life had improved. So that had to be the face of God. So the end of the story, after getting a chance to revisit all these people, when he leaps, he leaps back into himself minutes before he ever stepped into the imaging chamber for the first time. I just got chills. That was my ending for Quantum Leap. That's an amazing uh, ending. Is there any chance of uh, reviving the Quantum Leap comic book license and getting that done, maybe because of the 25th anniversary? Oh, I I would love it, and I would still like to do the story. And in fact, about 12 pages of artwork from that story exists and is still in in a drawer here in my office. Wow. So uh, it, it, it was a splendid little story. And I loved doing that ending, and when the licensing department got hold of that story and approved it. They said, where the hell were you a year ago when we needed this? And I laughed, and I said, I've been here the whole time. Uh, I was approached by somebody 
last year, I think it was, who asked me, uh, it, it was a small publisher in Canada, who was, uh, the guy was a big comic book fan, a big fan of, of Quantum Leap, and asked me, and I, and I told him the, the pitch that I, I just told you. He said, oh, I want to publish that story. And he went after the rights. He, he went to uh, Universal to try to try to get them, because that was the only contact I had. But unfortunately, that information was 20 years out of date. And Universal's people there now would not or could not give him the information of who uh, who would control the rights at this point. So if, if uh, you or any of your, your listeners know, uh, pass it on to me and I'll pass it on to the guy and maybe we can get this story into print. That sounds really good. I guess this is the same type of question, but I wanted to ask about these comic books. Are there any chance of them showing up in like a trade paperback? Well, uh, that would come under exactly the same thing. Somebody has to find who has the rights to grant that license. Because back at the time, uh, when, when I was doing these comics, there weren't a whole lot of tie-in licenses to, to this stuff. And the licenses being offered were very restrictive. It was like, okay, it's an 18-month uh, license for 12 issues, which gave you six-month development time, and then you had to hit the ground running. And we had to go back and renegotiate to do the portfolio, and then if we wanted to do something else, we had to negotiate that. So everything was a separate step. Nowadays, I think the licenses are a little pricier, but they if you negotiate them right, they cover a little more. Like I'm noticing publishers now doing licenses and they're crossing, you know, Dark Shadows into Vampirella and, and oddball stuff like that. But that stuff wasn't done at the time, nor, nor was uh, granting anything long term. So if somebody picked up the rights to do a new Quantum Leap story, I feel pretty secure that somebody could get the, uh, include the rights to reprint those original issues. And uh, fortunately, I have a lot of the materials that that stuff could be reprinted from if somebody wanted to do it. Great. Yeah, I know uh, talking to Deborah Pratt, she really uh, wants to do more with the Quantum Leap universe. So maybe that's something I can pass along the information and idea. Uh, Have her call me. I'd be happy to make it happen. All right. Sounds good. I'm excited. Besides the awesome idea you had for the ending of Quantum Leap, were there any other stories you wanted to do in comic book form that you didn't get a chance to? You know, um, as I said, I left Innovation about 10 months before it closed its doors. George Broderick was still in place as the editor of the Quantum Leap line. So I remember they did the 12 issues. They did, uh, we did a sort of a reprint of the issue one. We did the time and space special. And I'm pretty sure that he had another half a dozen ideas in the works and then mine was going to be at the tail end of that as our renewal of the license ended so that we could wrap it up. But with being so many years since I've had a chance to talk to George Broderick, I don't even know what those ideas would have been. Why did the Quantum Leap Comics end? Uh, the Quantum Leap Comics ended because innovation as a publishing company ended. Uh, it, it was a bizarre situation because you know how, how businesses is work. Sometimes it's not whether a company is making money. It's, it's something else they're doing, making more money. Innovation was funded by a company that organized startups of businesses. 
And they had something else going with a primary investor in the company that had something else do really well. And they wanted something that would offset the profits. And they found that if it, basically if they shut down innovation, they could use it as a tax write-off, which is a hell of a reason to close down a company that was making money. But I had seen the writing on the wall that they were heading in that direction in 93, so I had put in my resignation. And sure enough, 10 months later, that's what they did, which was a shame because, you know, they, they had Quantum Leap that was making money, Lost in Space, Dark Shadows, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, they had more Anne Rice projects on the horizon. We were working with Stephen King and a whole bunch of other people. So it was a shame to see all that stuff put to rest. Uh, there are full issues of things that never made it to print of, of some of those books, and that was a shame. I really enjoyed the Quantum Leap comics. I have read up till the seventh issue right now, uh-huh. and uh, when I read them, I hear the actors' voices. So that's one of the reasons I love tie-in comics more than original stories, I'd say, because I know the characters better and I can enjoy it more. Is that one of the reasons you like the tie-ins? Well, I, you know, I, I like them because uh, when we're doing them, we had people working on them that were passionate about them. George Broderick, as I said, absolutely loved Quantum Leap. When I was working on, on uh, Lost in Space, I went after it because I knew Bill Mooney, you know, uh, uh, Will Robinson himself, mm-hmm. had always wanted to do a Lost in Space comic. And no matter how he tried, he couldn't get the license. Marvel Comics couldn't get the license. DC Comics couldn't get the license. He begged them to try. So I, I had known Bill from years earlier, so I got the license, and then so he was able to work on it. So but having people who just loved these things, knowing them in and out, was what enabled those books to come out sounding right. Sounds like it was a real labor of love. Were the people involved in making it, were they making money doing it also? Well, nothing at Innovation was paying great money to people because it, it was a smaller company. But uh, you know, everybody was getting a page rate, and they were getting royalties on it. If the same books were coming out from Marvel Comics or whatever, they probably would have made more because Marvel was structured to pay more money. But uh, you know, we did as well as we could for everybody involved. Awesome. As I understand it, you were publisher and managing editor. Yeah, they played with titles over time because they were bringing other people in. But I was the founder of Innovation. I'm the guy who wrote the business plan, went out, uh, uh, found the company that would help me put together the financial package to get it launched. And then I was publisher and editor-in-chief for quite a while. And then for whatever reason, they decided to shift the title as managing editor because they brought somebody else in hoping that uh, they would do something more with uh, the company. I'm not quite sure what, but, <laughs> but they talked. they do something more with the company, and that person lasted four months and left. What was your responsibilities as it pertained to Quantum Leap, like on a day-to-day basis? Mainly finding artists that would make this thing work. And it's a shame you stopped reading with Issue 7, because with Issue 8, I think we achieved the best artwork. You know, we had Mark Jones on the first issue. We had, uh, I think, several different artists because we decided not to go with one artist for the entire run. We did that on some books, but for, for Quantum Leap and Lost in Space, we decided to match artists up to type of story. 
So we were going through several different artists through the run of issues. Now, when we hit issue eight, we had stumbled upon an artist in Brazil named Mike Diodato, who brought a wonderful sense of the likenesses to the characters. And so I believe eight, nine, 11, and 12 were the absolute best-looking issues of the book. So you got to check those out. I will. I uh, started reading them last night. I was saving them for the end of the series because we plan on doing a episode for each comic book later on after we get finished the television episodes. Mm-hmm. So, but when I found out I was going to talk to you, I tried to read them all, but that's as far as I got last night before I fell asleep. <laughs> but uh, great stories, great stories. I love it. I can't wait to finish. Part of our show, we have been doing an essay contest, and the prize for that essay contest has been issue nine of Quantum Leap. And uh, we've gotten a lot of questions on who are these people on the front cover. Are they supposed to be like celebrities or people that maybe Sam has leapt into? I suspect that was the idea. Uh, at, at this point, I do not remember exactly which story was in number nine. I can tell you that all the cover ideas were worked out between uh, George Broderick and uh, C. Winston Taylor. I think did a brilliant job on those covers for the entire run. He really did. Is that why he decided to showcase his talents with the portfolio series? Yes, yes. Uh, Winston, we were very lucky with because Winston had been uh, a, 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 a poster artist for movies. And he was president of the Society of Illustrators there in Los Angeles. So when we went to him and said, we want every cover to, f- to feel sort of like a movie poster, he knew exactly what we wanted. So uh, probably uh, beyond just a description from the editor of what we were looking for, probably the only things we had to do was tell him, play up the sense of humor, the exaggeration or, 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 or comedy whenever possible, because otherwise things uh, ended up being a little stiff in that movie poster sense of the word. So we, we tried to get a little more energy into some of the positionings. So uh, uh, the, the result, I thought, was pretty terrific. And we did a portfolio of the Quantum Leap because we had already tried a couple of other portfolios that were also successful. We did one of um, uh, the, the covers that cover painter Mike Okamoto had done for Lost in Space, and we had done two portfolios of the John Bolton cover paintings for uh, the Vampire Lestat. And it turned out that all the portfolios that, that we ended up doing came across real well. Plus, we, we ended up doing a, a Quantum Leap convention there in, in Los Angeles at, there in the 90s. And C. Winston Taylor and I were both guests, along with the editor. And uh, Winston Taylor signed an awful lot of those portfolios for for some happy fans. It is an amazing uh, portfolio. I I love it. I purchased two, one to keep for myself, and uh, one is the grand prize in our essay giveaway, speaking of the portfolio. Ah. I was wondering if you could announce the winner for our essay contest for us. Oh, sure. Uh, I recall an essay title, Balling the Loop, which means that uh, Marcus D. Ambrose should be our proud winner. Thank you so much, sir. You're quite welcome. To me, you sound like you really have a love and a passion for comics. Um, how did you get into the business in the first place? Uh, how much time you got? <laughs> All the time in the world. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, I, 
comic fan since I was a little kid. You know, I, I was one of the people that I could say, gee, I grew up on Stan Lee, you know, that sort of thing. So I, you know, I read Marvel, DC, Archie, Dell, Classics Illustrated, you name it, I probably read it. Um, so enjoyed comics as a kid, wanted to be a comic book writer when I grew up. Wanted to work with Stan Lee, kind of thing. So um, uh, in 1982, I sold my first comic book story to Pacific Comics. By the mid-'80s, I was writing Superman stories for editor Julia Schwartz at DC. Then I started packaging comics for a variety of packagers. And uh, some of it went well, some of it went not so well. And I decided, well, I now have all this background. You know, I, I could start a publishing company and do this myself. So that's when I wrote the business plan, started Innovation Publishing, which I ran for five years until I uh, uh, put in my resignation in early 93. And I started then Glasshouse Graphics, which is an agency that represents artists, writers, colorists, that sort of thing from all over the world. So uh, these days, after having been in the business 21 years as an agency, we produce artwork for Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Dynamite, IDW, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Hasbro, Lego Toys, Mattel, go down the road. Anything that's comics-oriented probably goes through us at some point or another, including a lot of uh, a Disney and DreamWorks artwork for, for, for the children's books and various comics. So probably 40-something comic books and kids' books come through Glasshouse Graphics every single month. You know, you look at Marvel's top book for the summer, which is Original Sin. Well, the artist, not so coincidentally, Mike Diodato, our top guy on Quantum Leap, is the top guy at Marvel doing their biggest crossover. So uh, it, it's a fun business to be in because I get to work with all these creative people day in and day out. Probably the other thing that's worth mentioning is that a fellow that wanted to start a new comic company called Red Giant Entertainment came to me about three, a little over three years ago as I was moving uh, uh, from West Virginia where innovation was to Florida where I am now. And he wanted to know if I would help him develop creative for this new company. And it's, it's an interesting company because not only are two of the owners movie and, and video game producers, but one of the owners is a printer, one specializes in web comics, and they wanted yours truly, who had all this experience just doing comics over the past 30 years. And uh, so they launched a little trial on free comic book day, May 3rd. They put out four free comic books. Uh, even Marvel didn't do that. So there were four books, Giant Size Action, Giant Size Adventure, Giant Size Thrills, Giant Size Fantasy, each with two projects. And beginning in November, all of your listeners can go to Toys R Us or to the Friendly Neighborhood Comic Shop and get a free comic book every week from Red Giant. Wow. Free is a great price. <laughs> it so really is. Goes, yeah, so you go to Toys R Us, you buy something, you get a free comic. Go to a comic shop, they might just hand them to you, or it might be free with purchase. We're leaving it up to the comic shop to decide. But each comic book will be somewhere between 64 and 72 pages. That's why it's giant size, twice the number of pages. And uh, each comic will have two adventures in it, things like uh, 
Tesla, which is uh, exactly what you might think. Tesla teaming up uh, uh, with other people the time period and 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 having adventures. And there's Pandora's Blogs, which is a supernatural romance. And there's superhero stuff. There's fantasy. There's thrills. There's adventures. There's eight different series across these uh, four different titles. And they'll start one every week beginning in November. So go to Toys R Us or go to uh, Comic Shop. Tell them I sent them. <laughs> All right. I have a couple technical questions. Sure. Nowadays, when you're making the comics, is uh, the artwork still hand-drawn, or is some of it digital now, or how does that work? All comics are hand-drawn. By digital, I assume you mean, are they drawn on paper as opposed to on, say, a Wacom Cintiq tablet? Right. Yeah, okay. Um, I'd say 15 to 20% of our artists draw some, if not all, of their artwork digitally. Mike Diodato works, does his covers on paper, frankly, because he can sell his covers for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all the interior work he's done for the past three years has been on Wacom Cintiq tablets because the process is a little faster. The artists uh, retain the rights to the original artwork they do, right, most of the time? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, uh, technically, it's, it's work made for hire, then the company is returning the artwork as a gift, which I think is kind of funny, <laughs> but uh, th- that's the legality of it. But um, a lot of artists over the years have made a nice second income from reselling their original art. But when uh, a lot of the economy uh, dipped down a few years ago and the housing market fell apart and so forth, it seemed like a lot of people's extra money in the U.S. it just vanished. So sales of original art significantly dropped. Uh, now we, we know that original art sales in Europe are at an all-time high. So a lot of the work that uh, my top guys do that's still on paper, such as Mike Diodato's covers or uh, a number of my other artists' works, we have uh, art dealers in Europe that sell their work so they can still get top dollar over there. What's your opinion on the digital comics that are coming out now? Like you can download it for your iPad from different booksellers, just like you could get a paper comic book at the same time. What's your opinion on that? Well, you know, here's, here's, here's what you got to look at. When, uh, uh, when, when, when I was a kid, at least, the availability of comics was everywhere. I could literally walk up the street, the top of the next block, was a drugstore that carried just about every comic that I could possibly want. Whether I wanted Warren magazines or Gold Key Comics or Archie or Charlton or whatever it was, they had it all. I could ride with my parents 10 minutes to downtown Wheeling, West Virginia, and there were five places I could buy comic books. So that was pretty easy access to find everything you could possibly want. These days, if you think about it, the comic market as it now exists has shrunk tremendously, even from the days when I was publishing innovation. All the mom-and-pop stores, the drug stores, have vanished. The little uh, grocery stores have pretty much disappeared. So unless you go to a regular bookstore that might or might not have a comic rack, going to a comic shop is your only option. Well, when I was publishing comics in the 90s, there were maybe 8,000 comic shops. The last number I heard a few months ago was something like 1,800 comic shops. 
which has turned it into a real niche market. So with that small an, an opportunity for access, comics are no longer a market where kids can pick them up as an impulse buy, or even if it's something they want. What, they've got to have their parents drive them an hour to a comic shop? That's not conducive to regular buying. That's not conducive to collecting. So kids don't get into the habit of it. I went to um, a school where, where my daughter goes and was talking about comic books, and I handed out some X-Men books that we had uh, produced. And, you know, a parent's day, talking about what we do. And the kids went, oh, wow, you mean there's an X-Men comic book, too? They weren't aware that there were X-Men comics. They were aware of the cartoons, the movies, the video games, the toys, all the merchandise. But with the exception of my daughter and two of the kids in the class who'd been to my house, not a single other kid in the classroom had ever held a comic book in their hands. So that means the market had to expand. And if all the kids are online, then the availability of digital comics had to be a logical way to go, uh, whether they're getting them through uh, any of the three or four or five downloadable sources for this stuff, Comixology or whatever it might be. You know, it's great, just so they have a source where they can read the stuff. That's the important thing. Now, I personally am not thrilled with reading a comic book on a tablet, but only because I spend most of my work day working at a computer screen. So the last thing I want to do for pleasure is read on a computer screen. <laughs> uh, plus, I, you know, I grew up reading paper comics where you, you can control it at your own speed and so forth. So I love having the physical comic book in my hand to read, whether it's the 32-page pamphlet or the trade paperback or the hardcover, whatever, it doesn't matter. I like having the actual book. And, uh, you know, I was mentioning to you earlier about the Red Giant Entertainment stuff and then uh, this free line of giant-sized comics. It's, it's coming out, uh, as I said, free through Toys R Us and comic shops. But also, if I understand correctly, a month later, those comics will also be available online. So in the off chance uh, people weren't one of the million that got into Toys R Us or, or the comic shop to get their, their free comic, they'll find it online. So the important thing is that they read it. And I think part of Red Giant's goal is to increase that readership. Because when I was a kid, a half a million people would read a comic book uh, without it being any big deal. Comic books were routinely canceled at a 250000 sale. By the time we got into uh, the 21st century, if a company had a 100,000 sale, they were talking about what a big hit it was. So that's why I think the idea of distributing a million comics a week uh, to, to kids and their parents was a great idea because it's going to get people started reading again. So whether it's the paper comics, the trades, or available online, I'm all for it as long as they read very good. I, I, I do a little bit of both. I have a local comic shop about a mile away from me, so I'm very lucky with that. Yeah, moving here to the Orlando area, I found the same thing. We have a local comic shop that has no back issues, but they carry most of the main available titles, and that's you know, three minutes from my home. Or I can drive into Orlando 
and there are at least three comic shops within a 40-minute drive. But the idea is, if there wasn't one right here, I'd still have to drive 40 minutes in one direction or another to get to it. And that that's hardly the same as if you know every 7-Eleven or every drugstore, Walgreens or or Rite Aid or whatever it was, carried a full line of comic books. Uh, we'd be having a bit of a different conversation right now. I, I guess it's good that it's available for people that can't get them. As far as I know, Quantum Leap isn't available in digital download form, correct? Correct. And that would be something that would also be like the trade paperback. You'd have to renegotiate all that stuff. Right, yeah. Somebody would have to get the rights to do it. Uh, I, I kind of like to collect them myself, you know, in the bag and the board after I read them, and I put them on my shelf, and I look at them, and I'm all happy. Oh, sure. Uh, in my own case, the, the Red Giant books we're doing, where they're going to come out online and, and all that. But uh, a year down the road, I suspect uh, they'll they'll collect the previous year's stuff into trades and hardcovers, because I like having them on my bookshelf. Uh, you know, I've, I've got... Uh, uh, you know, people say, you've got issues. Yeah, I, uh, they're in long boxes in my basement. <laughs> uh, I, I probably have dozens of, of, of long boxes just full of comics, both ones I collected as a kid and ones that I've published over the years. So uh, uh, I'm very into people having comic collections and having full runs of things. So I completely understand that kind of thinking. With shows like Comic Book Men and comic conventions getting bigger and bigger all the time, do you think comic books are almost on the verge of making a comeback? If I have anything to do with it, it will. Uh, the, the, I had for years been saying, since the comic market imploded in the 90s, that happened when 12 distributors, uh, when Marvel started distributing their own books, that pretty much decimated the comic market. Uh, I mean, it, it it immediately knocked out a couple of uh, distributors, and then one by one they got knocked off till only Diamond was left. And that meant uh, uh, 8,000 comic shops also imploded down to 2,000. So that that was a big problem. And so that meant some geniuses were ha- going to have to come along and figure out a new way to get comics in, in people's hands. The fact that comic conventions seem to be growing. You know, uh, San Diego, the Comic-Con, can't get any bigger. It's limited by the uh, the size of the convention center. New York Comic-Con can't get any bigger. It's limited by the same physical location. I've watched as uh, other comic conventions and big companies running conventions seem to be doing more and more of them. That tells me the interest is out there, but you'll notice the interest just isn't in comics. The conventions that are growing are the ones that really make it a a one-stop shop for pop culture. So you go to meet your favorite celebrity, or uh, uh, you you go to get your your picture taken or your book signed, or or, uh, go see what the latest preview is coming from the movie studio or the television company. So it's not just about comics. If it truly were, then... I think there would be uh, more of an impetus for, for retailers to want to carry the comic books. So as it stands, you see places like uh, Hot Topic and Spencer Gifts and, and just about anywhere else you can think of, 
more willing to carry the merchandise with Spider-Man on it or whatever than they are to actually carry the comic with Spider-Man. Uh, you know, uh, uh, how little do some of the, the, the corporations uh, care? Go to Disney World and see if you can find a Disney comic book anywhere. You can't. So uh, uh, there, there's still a bit of a problem with the distribution. I'm hoping that, that this plan to distribute a million comics a week helps, but it's going to take a lot more than that. Once the comics are, if they're once again available everywhere, the kids can pick them up without them being ridiculously overpriced like they are now. $4 for a pamphlet should be $1.95. Um, if people can have access to it and pick it up, then I think that's how the comic market itself would grow again. You probably get this question all the time, being involved in comics and being uh, the person who decides what artists get work and what writers get work. But how would somebody interested in getting started in the comic book industry, what, what would your advice to them be? Well, I, I, have, I have several bits of advice here because this is what I do for a living. You know, I, I, uh, a part of being an agent is discovering new talent all over the world. And if you went down my roster of people past and present, you'd be amazed to discover that quite a few of the top guys working at Marvel and DC right now as well as Dynamite and the others, are all my guys, past and present. Ed Bennis and, and Al Rio and Joe Bennett and Mike Diodato and Will Connor. The list goes on and on and on. And that had to come from me finding artists. So I've made it a point over the past 20-plus years to teach, because there aren't a lot of people teaching the practical part of creating comics. So... If people are interested in, in, in breaking in, you start with the basics. You do some market research. You, you, you see what publishers are buying, what type of art styles and so forth they're using. If you're not sure what to do, I have a blog exactly on that subject, davidcampetti.com. And it's all about breaking into the business. A lot of it's about mistakes that artists make. Uh, and I report on those mistakes, portfolios that have been submitted that are bad, poor attitudes, the, the correct and incorrect ways to name files, all this stuff, both creative and technical, for what uh, artists, writers, letterers, and colorists would need to know before they ever submit to any editor or, or agent. I also talk about this stuff on my Facebook. Uh, nearly every day there's some posting about breaking into the comic biz. And you'll remember at the beginning of the conversation where I said uh, I had wanted to uh, break into the business to write and work with Stan Lee. Mm -hmm. Well, three years ago, I wrote the book Stan Lee's How to Draw Comics. Oh, wow. Now, Stan wrote a book back in 1977 uh, with uh, artist John Buscema that was, about, that was called How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. Well, this is a completely different book done from scratch that uh, uh, they had wanted Stan to do, but uh, you know, Stan's 91. Uh, he wasn't about to take the time to write a 200-and-some-page book that dealt with you know, Photoshop and Manga Studio and Google SketchUp and all this contemporary stuff that didn't exist when he was writing and editing comics. So uh, he pointed them in my direction because I, I, I know how to sound like Stan and I, and I know about all this stuff. I'm not, and I've worked with him on books over the years. 
So uh, I, I, my company even did artwork for his uh, uh, Who Wants to Be a Superhero show that was on uh, sci-fi for a couple of years. So I, I ended up writing the, the book, Stan Lee's How to Draw Comics, which takes you through not only uh, a brief look at comics' history and how we got here, but every step of the way of uh, uh, designing characters, layouts, pencils, inks, uh, uh, a bit about lettering and coloring, a bit about uh, how to approach editors, what to do and what not to do. So it's all there in writing so that somebody can pick it up and follow it. And it's based on the creating comics seminars that I've taught all over the world. So I think it would be a good help to people trying to break in. That sounds great. If Quantum Leap fans that love the Quantum Leap comics get their way and there is a revival of them, do you have more stories that you'd like to uh, put in the comic book form for Quantum Leap? I tell you, if the Quantum Leap people would contact me about making it happen, I I can state pretty well right off uh, now. I'd be happy to publish a new Quantum Leap comic book. Uh, uh, I'd be willing to do it through Red Giant Entertainment. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, the first thing I would probably do is contact George Broderick, uh, who uh, I, I know he still lives in Pittsburgh. And uh, I would have him go down the list, see what he wanted to do. I also know many professional writers over the years who came up to me and said, oh, man, I wish you were still doing the Quantum Leap comic. I would have loved to have worked on that. So there's an awful lot of uh, uh, novelists and other uh, writers, comic book writers and so forth, who would love to uh, continue working or do some work on Quantum Leap. And uh, hey, if that happens, maybe I'll finally get to do my three-part ending. I would love to read that. Do you have any favorite Quantum Leap episodes? Because you seem to be a fan of Quantum Leap. I am. Um, in the, uh, I, I can tell you, I was not a fan of the last episode, <laughs> which is why, I, which is why I, I did mine. Um, bizarrely, the episode that sticks in my head the most was the one where uh, Sam kept calling the kid out on the farm, "Hey, pal. Hey, friend. Hey, buddy." Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was Buddy Holly. Yes, that's a great one. Uh, so I, I absolutely loved stuff like that. There were some that got got a little uh, too strange or complicated as, as they went along, but the ones that I think I enjoyed the best were the ones that Scott Bakula really got to show off that he could sing and dance and perform. Because you, you, you look at uh, Scott Bakula's uh, history before and after Quantum Leap, you know, when, when he was a starship captain on a Star Trek series, he didn't have a chance to do that stuff. He didn't have a chance to do that as, as Chuck's father on the Chuck TV show, or you certainly know he's not going to have a chance to, to be fun, to be uh, exuberant and sing and dance. This fall, when he's on NCIS, he's not going to have a chance to be a song and dance man. So getting a chance to see him uh, really do that stuff on Quantum Leap is what tickled me most. Do you have a favorite Quantum Leap comic that you were involved in? Oh, man. Uh, The ones I didn't get to publish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I'm pretty proud of the game show episode that, that we did. And I was really glad of the first issue that we did because we proved we could make it work. Do you have any upcoming appearances that people should know about? Oh, sure. Um, 
I am uh, in early October. I'm a guest at the Austin Comic Con in Austin, Texas. And then the following week, I am uh, uh, a guest at uh, New York Comic Con. And then uh, at the end of October, I'm going to be way down in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, there's a chance that I may be at uh, Luca in uh, Italy later this year. Wow. So this really takes you all around the world. Oh, sure. Uh, every year I end up over in Asia, over in, uh, down in, in Brazil, uh, or up in the Canada, or somewhere or another. But uh, despite my having an office over in Europe, I've never been to Europe. So uh, I'm hoping I can make this, this trip to Luca this fall. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation, and I appreciate it so much, you taking the time to talk with me. I learned so much, and I can't wait to check out some uh, Red Giant comics. Thank you so much, and it was a, it was a pretty, good, uh, pretty good time. As always, that was a great interview. It was really cool to find out what might have been if the comic series had kept going. And what an honor that he was the one to announce our winner. That worked out perfectly. Yeah. And now we have a segment from Jill. genitive case of the third person singular indefinite pronoun, or The Grammar of Quantum Leap, a missive by Jill Arroway, read by Tawny Finneran. We hear the introductory words every week. It goes like this. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap accelerator and vanished. What is perhaps less well-known is that these words highlight a difference between British and American English, You see, it all has to do with the word one. It's a pronoun. One uses it in a sentence like, well, this. It's a placeholder for anybody. Consider a sentence such as, one can like both Quantum Leap and Firefly at the same time. Who is being referred to in that sentence? Who is one? As it turns out, one isn't anyone in particular. One is just someone, anyone, a person in general. So far, so good. And I'm sure you already knew that. But now let's think about the genitive case. It's a difference between me and my, and the two sides of the Atlantic disagree about what it should be. In Britain, we say ones. So for example, we might say one drives one's car. But I'm given to understand that to American ears, that sentence sounds too formal and stuffy ever to say out loud. And so in the USA, the word ones just doesn't exist. An American would instead substitute the word his. An American, in other words, would say, one drives his car. And yes, that is still supposed to be gender neutral. And that just sounds wrong to a Brit. It leaves us thinking, whose car? Did I miss something? What has any of this to do with Quantum Leap? Well, it's right there in the introduction. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett. Let's turn that sentence around to put the words in a more natural order. Sam theorized 
that one could time travel within his own lifetime. The grammar problem is whose lifetime? An American hears, Sam theorized that one could time travel within the time traveler's own lifetime. A Brit hears, Sam theorized that one could time travel within Sam Beckett's own lifetime. Of course, that's bonkers, but that's what we hear, because it just doesn't occur to us that his might be American for one's, and of course, that interpretation is absurd, so we tend to assume we misheard. Perhaps they said, theorizing that he could time travel, perhaps, oh, to hell with it, let's just watch the show. So now you know. To anyone on my side of the Atlantic, you didn't mishear. You were simply divided by a common language. I will admit, though, that even though I pay attention to this sort of thing, I still don't entirely get it. So I would appreciate it if someone from the U.S. of A. could please tell me how you would fill in the blank in this sentence. When one is pregnant, one must watch fill in the blank diet. Thank you, Joe, for that article. It is really interesting how people on both sides of the pond use the same words and they mean different things. And we have a new segment for this episode. This is a novel review by David Feldman. A novel review. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Speaking of using words in different meanings. <laughs> this is really cool. David is going to go through all the Quantum Leap novels and give a short review of each one and um, give us his thoughts. The Beginning, written by Julie Robitaille, published by Corgi Books in 1990, republished by Bakhtri Limited in 1994. Between 1990 and 2000, 20 Quantum Leap novels were published in the U.S. and the U.K. The first novel, The Beginning, is a novelization of the pilot episode of the series Genesis. The Beginning is one of only two Quantum Leap novelizations ever published. I suspect that, because of its length, Genesis was rarely, if ever, rebroadcast after its initial broadcast in 1989. For fans who missed the pilot episode and couldn't procure a dubbed VHS copy in the Dark Ages before online streaming video services and DVDs, this novelization would have been a convenient way to learn about Sam's first leap. It doesn't differ from the original episode in any significant way except that it's peppered with some mild profanity. Like Genesis, the beginning is told in the first person from Sam's POV, when he wakes up in an unfamiliar place with no memory of who he is or what he's doing there. Sam discovers that he's an Air Force test pilot named Tom Stratton. Just as he begins to accept this reality and newfound identity, an oddly dressed man appears, who nobody else can see or hear, and gradually helps Sam remember who he truly is and how he can come to wake up in someone else's body. Anyone familiar with the Genesis episode knows what happens next, but there will be no spoilers here. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. 
And if you have seen Genesis, which I assume most listeners of this podcast have, you may still enjoy this novelization. It's a quick read and captures the adventure and humor of the source material. Julie Robitaille seems like a competent writer, but for whatever reasons, she never wrote any Quantum Leap novels except this one and one other novelization based on the season 2 episode of Portrait for Troyan. There's not much more to be said about the beginning. It's a pretty straightforward adaptation of the Genesis episode. Apart from the novelization of the episode of Portrait for Troyan, which was retitled The Ghost and the Gumshoe for publication, the other 18 Quantum Leap novels are all original stories. I'll be reviewing them in order of publication, starting next with the Quantum Leap, the novel, a.k.a. Carney Knowledge. Until then, remember, it doesn't take a Quantum Leap accelerator to have a great adventure with Sam and Al. All you have to do is leap into a book. David for your review of the beginning. It makes me want to start to read the novels. I own them all. I haven't read them yet. I think the show, once we're done with the show, you'll need more Quantum Leap in your life. That's my plan. After Mirror Image, I'm going to need more Quantum Leap. Heather, I understand you have some news for us. Oh yeah. We have two exciting pieces of news today. The first one is Quantum Leap the Complete Series is now available for pre-order on DVD. And you can find that link at quantumleappodcast.com and when it becomes closer I'll paste it in the Facebook group. Awesome. From what I understand it's the exact same discs as the Quantum Leap seasons were released. It's just new packaging. So... There's still the issue with the music, but if you haven't gotten the Region 1 DVDs and you're planning on getting them, please get them through our site because that helps out the show a little bit if you click through our link. But more importantly, I think they might be testing the waters to see how much fan support there is for Quantum Leap now. So now is the time to buy the DVD set. I'm saying yes. If you want to support Quantum Leap and possibly have hope for a Blu-ray project in the future, high sales of these DVDs might be an indication to the powers that be that there is interest in Quantum Leap. And we, the Quantum Leap fans, are out there. And maybe a Blu-ray project would be profitable for them. So for that reason, I think it's a a buy. Do you think they fixed the wrong leap-ins at the end? They didn't fix anything. (laughs) It's, It's all the same discs. Oh, man. But if you don't own them yet... Maybe it's a good thing to have just to follow along with us and compare the different musics from the different places. But maybe when they do the Blu-rays. So we got to go out and buy the DVD sets. So they'll make the Blu-rays. It's an investment in our fandom. It really is. Because if they release this set and nobody buys it, they're not going to say, oh, that's because the music was replaced or people are waiting for Blu-ray. They're going to think that the fandom's not out there. So even if we, which this is a great idea, even if we buy the complete series and we don't want it, but we donate it to our local library so kids can at least learn some moral lessons like we did as kids and uh, more people can get to see Quantum Leap, that would be great. So even if you don't want them, and you can buy them, please do. And you can always help out the show by going to quantumleappodcast.com slash Amazon to do all your Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you any extra, but they give us a little bit of kickback for sending you over there. And what's the next bit of news, Heather? Well, on Saturday, August 16th, 
Oh, that's soon. That's like now. It's at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Pacific on BBC America. The series Real History of Science Fiction, the episode about time travel, Don Belisario will be talking about Quantum Leap. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, I know. We'll be tuning in. So this is the first time it's going to be on, and I'm sure it'll be on many times after that, but... Set your DVRs. Open up your TiVo app unless you're driving and make sure you're recording Real History of Science Fiction on BBC America. That sounds like a pretty cool show anyway. Yes. And if you don't get BBC America because maybe you're not in America, check your local listings. I'm sure there's a BBC everywhere. That is exciting news. We don't normally have news, but it's great to be getting Quantum Leap news. Oh, yeah. So uh, big things happening. And we have some feedback. All right. What's first? We have a voicemail from Phil. One of two of our favorite Aussies. (laughs) G'day, Albie and Heather. It's Phil again. Or is it Hayden? No, it's Phil. Or is it... Yeah, it is. I've got some thoughts on all Americans to share, but before I do, can I just say thanks to Heather for the birthday wishes on the last podcast. You and Albie both follow my Facebook, so you may remember the fun Brittany and I had on my birthday. With the hot water heater bursting in our kitchen in the small hours of the morning and flooding our apartment, I didn't exactly have the fun day I was hoping for. But I got to spend a day with Brittany, so between that and the beautiful Nexus tablet she bought me for my birthday present, I still had a good day overall. Okay, so all Americans, the episode that introduced me to the world of Quantum Leap. It's not an episode that anybody ever seems to mention in their list of favorites, including me, admittedly. But it has its charms, and I do have a soft spot for it, as it is technically my first episode. It's fun seeing Sam play a teenager again. I think Scott Bakula definitely acted younger than normal in this episode in that subtle way he had of playing everybody he leaped into a little differently. When getting my thoughts together for this episode, I found myself wondering, if Chewie throwing the championship game and costing himself a scholarship was what Sam was there to fix, why didn't Sam just leap into Chewie? He could have played the game as Chewie and helped the Jaguars win, and more importantly, he wouldn't have made the same deal with Reuben to throw the game and erase Celia's rent debt, which in the original history ruined Chewie's scholarship chances. And the episode could still have ended the same way, with Sam saving the day by suggesting that Celia and Manuel get married and move in together. So wouldn't that have been easier? Well, I soon realised that leaping Sam into Eddie instead was the better choice on GTFW's part. Chewie never knew his father, but it's obvious that he would do anything to help his mother, even if it meant sacrificing his own future, which originally is exactly what happened. Fortunately, by leaping into Eddie, Sam was able to show Chewie that he didn't need to make that sacrifice in order for things to work out for Celia. Chewie, at great detriment to himself, had decided to fix his mother's problem in the only way he saw possible. It took the efforts of Sam to make him realise that there was another way. And that was a lesson that Chewie needed to learn, I think, especially being at an age where he was about to go out into the world and start making his own mark. Let's not forget, one of those football scholarships could have taken Chewie a long way from home, and learning how to try and solve problems and help others without necessarily hurting yourself, and more importantly, learning how to stand up for yourself and not let other people manipulate you, the way Reuben tried to do to both Chewie and Celia, were important life lessons that Chewie wouldn't have been able to learn sitting around in the waiting room. On the other hand, Eddie didn't really need to be around for Sam to get the job done in this episode, so I think Sam leaped into the right person. My other thoughts. Manuel and Celia were cute together, and I'm glad that things worked out for them at the end of the episode. Reuben, on the other hand, not much to like about him. He didn't seem like a very good person, and frankly, he was a little disturbing. He kind of brought back memories of Bert Glasserman and Thou Shalt Not. The funniest part of this episode for me was Al's disbelief, almost to the point of being offended that Sam thought he was still a virgin at 16. Seemed strange to me, too, 
considering that in the last episode, Al was talking about being with a girl when he was 15 and getting caught by her parents. I don't know very much about American football, so I had to do a tiny bit of research while recapping parts of this episode. I definitely know a lot more about Australian brands of football. I admit that I'm still not exactly sure what a quarterback does, so I guess I still have a lot to learn on the subject. Overall, I like the episode. It's not one of my favourites, as I said, but then again, I don't really have any episodes of Quantum Leap that I don't like, and I think most people out there would probably say the same. And the good thing about this show is that even if there is an episode you don't like, you can always look forward to the next episode being completely different. So until next time, this is Hayden McQueenie. Uh, I mean, this is Phil Doherty saying happy leaping. It was really nice to get his thoughts on All-Americans. Thank you very much. And keep them coming. We have two emails today, one from Jill. And these emails will be read by Juan. Just to offer my opinion on something that was said in your Another Mother episode, Al can revisit little Teresa. Yes, I know he's not a time traveler as such. Yes, I know he can only visit times in the past to which Sam visits, but there is nothing to stop him from visiting Teresa in the present. His present is the year 1999, so Teresa will have to wait 17 years. Okay, that's longer than Amy Pond had to wait, but I could still be telling the truth. Jill. And now this email is from Father Beast. Sam leaps in, as usual, in a situation with a lot of pressure on him. And wow, Al sure got there in a hurry. Usually he takes some time to talk to the Leapy before he shows up. Maybe he now has it down to a routine where the Leapy appears in the waiting room, and Al snaps out. Quick, what's the date? and then runs down to the imaging chamber to meet with Sam. Anyway, he's in the life of Eddie Varga, football star and best friend to this guy Chewy, also a football star, and whose mother is an illegal immigrant. As such, she is preyed upon by at least two people who take advantage of her because of that. Her landlord, who is immediately and slimily a complete sleazeball, as well as her employer who can get away with not paying her. Having worked in a warehouse for years with Spanish-speaking guys, I have picked up muy poquito Spanish myself, enough to follow the little Spanish in the conversation in this episode. But it's not really about the illegal immigrant thing. It's about the extortion that Ruben pulls on Chewie to get him to throw the big game, and the closeness between the two young men which can save him. Chewie reminds Eddie at the beginning of the episode that they are committed to going to college together. When Sam benches himself after Chewie drops out with a fake injury, he is just living up to that commitment they have together. Then, when they both go back in, Sam throws the ball to Chewie and he drops it, losing the game. What Chewie feels immediately is that it wasn't worth it, and he would do anything to be able to do that play over again, and miraculously, he gets his chance. The follow-up, where Eddie's dad and Celia agree to marry, is very nice, since Celia never married in the original timeline. And finally, after being pounded with the jaguar roar and thump all episode, Sam does it to Ruben at the end as he leaps. This is the first occurrence of the freeze frame as he leaps, which I think is used all through the rest of the series. All the previous leaps out have been as the camera kept rolling. This episode is just fun and touching, with all the high school energy and humor and how close Eddie and Chewie are, and how Sam just needed to give a little push to make things right, since they were so close to working out originally. My wife and I cheered at the game and just loved the whole episode. Next time, the lunch counter. No, wait. Um, next time, definitely not a date. Father Beast. Thank you, Father Beast. I think we already agreed on a lot of the points he made in the email. It reminded me, too, about, again, Manuel and Celia. They also had more kids because of what Sam did. And who knows what those kids went on to do to make the world a better place. Very true. He mentioned the freeze framing of the episode. I guess that's a new thing for the episode. I kind of noticed that. I noticed it a little bit. But now I'm curious to watch in the future to see if that is used more, like he said. 
I remember uh, Holly Fields talking about how much they had trouble cutting him out for the leaping effect in her episode that they had to actually go back and redo the kiss to have more of a plain background. I feel like it would be easier to do it in freeze frame than keep the cameras rolling. Well, that might be why they started doing it. They realized it was a lot easier because they only had a, I guess, rotoscope. Is that a thing? You got me, pal. They only had to trace Sam out in one frame versus, who knows, 48 frames, 60, 72 frames. Yeah, I feel like that would be a lot easier. Little tricks you pick up as you go. I'm glad he liked the feel of the episode, too. Him and his wife liked this episode, so. We're on the same wavelength. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I feel like this was just a happy episode. It was. There wasn't really anything tragic, and I like that. There was a laos. Every now and then we need that. <laughs> Ruben, a bad guy. Right. But he got what was coming to him. So. Yeah, he lost a lot of money. And and he got slammed on the shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to wear that mustache. <laughs> Yay, we have a new listener. And she's a Star Trek fan. Which is awesome. Hi, guys. This is Renee, the lady who found you on Twitter this morning. I just listened to your first episode tonight, and I'm impressed. I enjoy your style very much. I'm American, but I've been living in Germany since 1985. I didn't get a television until many years after moving here, so Quantum Leap literally leapt right by me even when it first ran in German TV, which was a year or two after it began in the States. Just recently, a friend here introduced me to the series and I've watched most of the first season, which is now on iTunes. Netflix is not available here due to broadcasting licensing restrictions. I bought it in English because I avoid watching dubbing whenever possible. I've been a huge Star Trek fan all of my life, so my main interest in getting acquainted with Quantum Leap was seeing a younger Scott Bakula, whom I'd only known as Captain Archer in Enterprise. I also remember Dean Stockwell from the Enterprise episode Detained, where he played Colonel Gratt. The pilot two-parter, Genesis, was very good. I loved all the historical references, the music, everything. The barbecue scene made me chuckle because they played Ooby Dooby by Roy Orbison. That's the song Zephram Cochran plays during his first meeting with the Vulcans at the end of the Star Trek film First Contact, out in a Montana forest. But enough of the Trek references. Quantum Leap has an interesting and original premise, good messages, and fine acting. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the episodes and listening to your informative and insightful podcast right along with them. Keep up the great work. Cheers. Renee. Yeah. Hey, if you want more Star Trek-y stuff by Albie, you can always visit his other love, trekaholic.com. It's where I blog about all the Star Trek I watch over and over again. <laughs> it's interesting to know that Netflix isn't available everywhere. I'm I'm very naive in my... Just I just thought that that was everywhere. I don't know. I think there are ways, but it's not legal. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's awesome that we have a new listener, though. Thanks, Renee, for reaching out to us. And feel free to send us more feedback as you go through the show. There are many ways to leave feedback for the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com and find out more about us and how to contact us. Or you can... Go on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We are on Twitter at quantumleappod. We are also on Instagram at quantumleappodcast. And you can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And you can always call and leave a voicemail. And that number is... 707-847-6682. So please send us some feedback. And now it's time for Hayden's segment.
renaissance of Quantum Leap. In a season that is mostly high points, unfortunately it makes a more mediocre episode such as All Americans seem to be worse in quality than it should. I honestly don't have much to say about All Americans, except that it is an episode I tend to skip just because it is so forgettable. Not much happens in the episode, not much affects the series as a whole, and there isn't really a major moral aside from the obvious don't let anyone stop you from reaching your potential. The other qualm I have with this episode is the same qualm that I had with Thou Shalt Not, which was the focus on a religious group or race just for the sake of it. There was no reason why the main group of characters in this episode had to be Hispanic. It wouldn't have made any difference to the story at all. Even the focus on illegal immigration could have been done with any race, even Caucasian. This episode just felt like 45 minutes of Hispanic stereotyping. The same way in Thou Shalt Not, it felt like they brought in the Jewish factor just to fill out the episode. The only major point from this episode is that we learn that one of the many languages Sam speaks is Spanish. If this is the only lasting effect that an episode has, it's no wonder why I consider this the low point of an otherwise brilliant season. I have said in the past that there aren't any bad episodes of Quantum Leap, but this one is definitely not on my must-watch list. Since I don't really have much to say about all Americans, and the podcast for another mother raised more questions than answers, I thought it would be prudent to use my time to address some of these. First of all, something I forgot to mention in my last segment is how Sam and Al really did fill the roles of parents well. And all the way through, I couldn't help but think of them as an old married couple. It was easy to relate to and very fun to watch. I also found it interesting that Al tells Sam that they have to tell Troyan nothing but the truth, but then goes to make up a story to make the transition easier. After all, there's the truth and the truth. Albie is right though. Angels are those who help the higher power to fulfill its wishes, and Sam and Al are definitely doing their bit to help put the grand design back on track. They could easily be considered angels. I can picture Al saying, "What I said was true from a certain point of view." It is difficult to understand the mechanics behind the holograms in both the past and present. Heather expressed confusion over this, believing that Al should only be able to see what Sam does. This comes from the common misconception that the hologram of Al is projected into Sam's brainwaves, and similarly that the hologram generated around Al is what he is viewing from Sam's brainwaves. What we need to remember. Is the way the quantum leap project works is by sending things into the past. They are able to send a leaper whose body gets switched with someone in the past, but they are also able to send a projection of a person into the past as well. Really, they can send this projection to anywhere on Earth and to any time in the past. This means that yes, as Albie suggested, Al could theoretically witness any event anywhere in the world at any point in time. This is why Al is able to center in on another person and watch over them. It also means that Al is able to collect information that could be useful to Sam. This is also why Al has to interview the lead P in the waiting room to find out who he or she is and where or when they are from in order to find Sam. Al doesn't just lock onto Sam straight away. The neural link between Sam and Al is for communication purposes only, so that the information from the future about what wrong Sam is there to put right can be given to Sam. Like I said before, the neural link is kind of like tuning in a radio. Sam's brainwaves are the only ones that are tuned into Al's projection, apart from some others like Teresa, who either only see the truth or have similar brainwave patterns to Sam. Another Mother was the first episode with the generic narration explaining the premise of the show. All episodes after Another Mother featured Deborah Pratt providing this narration, while this episode featured a male narrator. Behind the scenes, the reason they started to do these generic narrations was to make it easier to play reruns. The show was intended to mostly be able to be played in any order. Having a recap of the previous episode makes this difficult, as we saw at the beginning of Animal Frat, which featured a recap of Kamikaze Kid, because when the episode was originally screened, they played a rerun of Kamikaze Kid the week before. While I'm on the subject, 
The wrong leap outs issue was discussed again in the last podcast. When the episodes were originally aired, if they knew they were going to be playing a rerun, they would put a teaser for that rerun as the leap out. When the series was aired in syndication, the leap outs were actually fixed. Since I'd originally watched the series in syndication, I was shocked when I'd watched my DVDs and found some episode leap outs were incorrect. Heather and Alby said that in future releases of the series, e.g. on Blu-ray, the leap outs should be fixed. I agree, and I am flabbergasted as to why they didn't do so in the original DVDs, considering they had already been fixed for syndication anyway. Back on the subject of the generic opening, though. Behind the scenes, it's obvious they were still testing out some things to decide what would be the best direction for the show. There is actually an in-universe reason for the change in voice, though. It is actually Ziggy who narrates the opening to each episode. Deborah Pratt has stated that Ziggy is a machine and doesn't have a gender, and it's believed that Ziggy's voice was changed at some point, because at some point, they stop referring to Ziggy as a he, and start referring to Ziggy as a she. No doubt because Deborah Pratt ended up being Ziggy's voice. So the male voice, the beginning of another mother, is actually Ziggy's original voice, but later was changed. In one of the novels, it suggested that it was changed by Tina. I quite enjoy the final scenes of another mother. Al teaching Teresa about the different types of dinosaurs is just a fun scene to watch, and his goodbye to Troyan is touching. I quite like that Sam senses that he is about to leap, giving Al the time necessary to say goodbye. Heather mentioned that in Thou Shalt Not, Sam knew when he was finished with his mission and about to leap. Another episode that comes to mind is What Price Gloria, where even after Gloria had been saved, Sam knew there was something else to do, although he had to have Ziggy tell him what, the revenge on Buddy. After punching him out, Sam says wait, and removes his high-heeled shoes and earrings, and then says he is ready to leap. Even though in the series we never find out if Al does find Teresa again, it is addressed in the novel Angels Unaware by L. Elizabeth Storm. It also features another major character, by the name of Angela, who we learn about later in the series. In this novel, Sam has leapt into a Catholic priest named Samuel O'Keefe, and it's his job to help a young woman named Teresa Bruckner, who he had contact with in another leap. She was a little girl at the time, but she remembers the promise of Angel Al that he would come back and has been waiting for him ever since. Will she finally get her wish before it's too late? Who is the mysterious woman Angela, and what is her connection to Sam, Al, and Teresa? What is she there to do? I'm not going to go into much detail about this novel, as David will when he reviews it, but it is a bit sad that just about all the problems predicted in The Sad Truths You Realize Were You Watching Quantum Leap about Amy ponding poor Teresa actually do happen to her at the start of the novel. I hope Sam, Al, and Angela can help her. I promise I'll be back. You know, I I know Phil and Hayden say they are separate people. But I hope I'm not being a jerk. But to me, they sound very similar. Especially in this episode. For real. But thank you, Phil. I mean, Hayden. Thank you, Hayden, for your segment. As always, it was quite enjoyable. Heather, do you have any trivia for us? I know I spoiled a lot of it during the episode, but it was stuff I wanted to talk about. But do you have anything left? Well, I know for one, Scott Bakula and Richard Coca, who played Chewy Martinez in this episode, worked together on a movie called... Luminarias from 1999, in which Scott had the leading male role. Ooh, a Scott Bakula film I haven't seen. I want to see it now. Yeah. Okay. And it has Chewie in it. It's on the to-do list. I think in the locker scene, Ruben walks in with a white visor, and he then it disappears, and he walks out without it. So that's a little boo-boo. 
I know something you noticed in this episode that wasn't in the trivia. Oh, yeah? Was that the the locker names? <laughs> yes. Uh, back then, I don't think you could see it, but what did one of the lockers say? Jay Mehoff. A little inside joke, I guess. Yeah, it was kind of funny. <laughs> if you know what we're talking about, you get the reference. Yeah, it... I think it was by Ruben's head when in that whole locker room scene when they were about to fight. and Not technically a production error because, of course, high school kids, they could put any name on a locker with a marker. That was not an error. That was purposely put there to be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I'm sure I'm sure the production crew got a, a laugh out of that, never intending it for it to like, make it to air. They're like, all right, what names do we want in these? And someone was like, I got one. <laughs> but once you found that one, I was like, oh, there's got to be others. And we went back and forth and didn't see any others. But that was funny. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I think there were some um, kind of production errors, though, as far as the lockers falling over. I think there were one too many that fell over when there was really only one. I think two fell over. And also, I think a mix up with the numbers on the jerseys. Um, Chewie's wearing 86. However, when he's sitting out, Someone else on the field is wearing 86. And then Sam goes from a 15 to a 12. So I think that might be because they used the stock footage. Oh, maybe. Yeah. But again, I didn't look at the numbers on the football costumes. So I didn't realize that until after I found out about it. Yeah. And it's still hard to tell. I don't really think you're paying attention too much to the numbers. I just think the wardrobe department did a great job matching the outfits to the stock footage. Couple more boo-boos. The California license plate on Ruben's car is blue, when in the 60s, they were black. Oh. And a little time error at the end. The clock shows six seconds remaining, and Eddie tells Sam there's only 23 seconds left in the game. Oh, I did not notice that. I'm going to have to go back and watch that one. I want to say that I did notice that, and then I'm like, well, I guess in football time. Because, <laughs> you know, six seconds is not six seconds. I know football time is longer than real time. Yeah, because I think I remember when I was little, I'd be like, how much longer is the game? And there's only two minutes left on the clock. And two minutes left on the clock doesn't mean two minutes. I think my experience was how much time till halftime? Five minutes. Cool. Come back later. How much time till halftime? Five minutes. What? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it really was 23 seconds, but who knows? Thank you, Heather, for that trivia. Of course. So a little bit of an update on our Dragon Con adventure coming up. Albie has a panel. Yay. And not only a panel, but it is the Quantum Leap 25th anniversary panel. Sweet. It was officially announced and now I'm officially on it. So I kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit early on that. It's my first panel. So I didn't know exactly when to give out the information, but now it's all confirmed. Right now, the panel will be on Friday at 4 p.m., but of course, that's all subject to change, so make sure you check the information when you get to Dragon Con if you are going. I opted to not volunteer for this panel because I obviously have not seen the whole series. I'm going to try not to get spoiled. I don't know if I'm actually attending the panel or not. I but... won't spoil it. Well, right, but I'm just... I feel like I want to go, but I feel like it's not somewhere for me to be because I'm going to try to avoid spoilers. Well, a lot of people's opinions on spoilers is it's 25 years ago. It can't be a spoiler. Okay, Brent Spiner. <laughs> if you haven't seen it by now, it's your own fault. You're doing it on purpose. You're not spoiled on purpose. Maybe we'll record it and I can listen later. <laughs> And it's going to be a great time at Dragon Con. And I do still have two panels. Um, I think the schedule has changed a couple times for them. So I have the originals 
fan panel and the vampire diaries fan panel so make sure you check your schedules and come see me hopefully not screw up (laughs) (laughs) it'll be okay yeah i think i'll be okay but right now it's very nerve-wracking my panel's first so once you see me mess up you'll be like oh i'm not gonna be that bad oh come on we'll be fine we'll be fine don't we do this for a living if you would like to meet up with us there check out what we look like on the website quantumlypodcast.com and if you come up to us and say hey I know you guys. You're from the Quantum Leap Podcast. You're Albie and Heather. We do have a limited amount of our new Quantum Leap Podcast t-shirts to give away. Very limited. It's on a first-come, first-served basis. So come up and say hi and introduce yourself, and we'll take pictures with you guys and put them on the website, and uh, we'll hand out as many t-shirts as we can. I'm excited. This is our first like big con that we're going to. I feel like it's going to be huge. <laughs> It's going to be huge. Yeah, I'm excited. This is the first one we're on panels, so that's exciting. I'm still in denial. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to get to meet some of our co-hosts from tvtalk.com, which is kind of exciting for me. And uh, we're going to attend the live recording of the Signal podcast, which is exciting for me. It's like a dream come true for you. It really is. The Signal had an episode of What's in a Podcast, how to make a podcast. They went through the process of how they did it, and that's what inspired me to start a podcast very many, many years ago. And I think you finally get to meet one of your idols, Kevin Batchelder. Yes. So I'm excited about that. In an alternate timeline, I'm told, I did a show with him, but I don't remember it. That how to do a podcast from The Signal was actually written by Jill Arroway. So there's a little bit of a connection there. That's pretty cool. You're totally a big fan of all the people we work with. (laughs) I really am a podcast fanboy. I enjoy podcasts. I have grown to like podcasts. I I really wasn't into it at first, but I'm really into the the podcast listening now. And I and I really like the community that we've met along the way, listeners and other podcasters. Hopefully, uh, we'll have a little bonus in store for you. I'm sure we'll have lots to report back. <laughs> so we're looking forward to it, and we hope to meet some of you there. So, Heather. Yes. How do you feel about watching The Color of Truth again? <laughs> I feel like we should skip it. I <laughs> think so? Yeah, I think the next one's about an FBI agent or secret society. I don't know. In the next episode, Sam leaps into an FBI agent in her charm. My first guess is I'm not here for a date. Oh, no. Not you. Definitely not a date. We could have been killed back there! Well, we weren't. No thanks to you. Anna Berenger, one-time personal secretary to a certain Nick Kochafus. He kills Dana. When she realized what kind of man she was working for, she went to the Justice Department with what she knew, and she gave enough to put Kochafus away for life. That was a year ago, and in the meantime, she's been on the witness protection program. The federal prosecutor promised me that Nick would be put away for life. Protect me! He kills her at 318 this afternoon. There was a cabin up in the Berkshires. That's where I'll take her. To Professor Lone Gross cabin. Then we're not going to Baltimore. No, no, no. She gets murdered on the way to Baltimore. One step closer, and I'll jump! Dana, I don't want you to die. Here they come, Sam! I give you respect all the time. What were you doing? Setting me up for the feds. Ah! Shoot him, Sam! Shoot him! We actually did Phil and Brittany's little trick to where you watch the beginning of Her Charm up into the opening credits so you could get a feel for the leap in. How did you like that versus seeing just the ending where you saw Jesse Taylor sit down at the counter again? 
I feel like it was more genuine to the next episode. <laughs> it looks like it'll be a fun episode. Yeah, I I don't I have no idea where that one's gonna go. <laughs> I usually make predictions, but I honestly have no clue. She obviously doesn't like him. It's not a date. Definitely not a date. Until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. May all your holograms be so high tech that they have smoke and shadows. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie, and Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. So what do you think about All-Americans? I like them. It's uh, two eggs, a half order of meat, some hash browns and toast. I mean, for the price, how can you go wrong? <laughs> Directed by John Cullum. Hey, wasn't that that dude? Patented victory cheer by shouting, Roar, Jaguar. <laughs> Sorry, I thought there was a bug on me and it's my headphones. So I was like, don't look, don't look, don't look. But I wasn't, I couldn't concentrate because I was like, something's on my arm. Okay, where am I at? He thinks. Okay. The next day, Chewie approaches Sam at football practice and tells him the coach wants him to lead the team's la 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 la. That's going in the bloopers, isn't it? So is that. The next day, Chewie approaches Sam at football practice. <laughs> Which Sam does quickly before being tackled. The marriage will make Celia. The marriage will make Celia a. One more time. The marriage will make Celia a legal. Nope, maybe not. An episode of Quanta to each other as themselves without half and without Sam half and having having saying halfing? I don't know having <laughs> having without I was gonna say something but I lost okay. it I don't know what I was gonna you say. do that a lot you lose things I don't sleep okay it'd be great to hear what she thinks um it's nice when people like our first show because I think uh we are getting better so and play-doh <laughs> you goof Quantum Leap, the original, the original series. Mm, we'll, we'll say that. <laughs> One day we'll say that. <laughs>